Episode 32, Goblin, with extra special guest interview, Todd Sheets. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another Daily Grindhouse Presents No Budget Nightmares. This is Moe. Shut up. He's a bad film hating while I skating all the while masturbating. That's Moe Pawn. Yeah. And with me, as always, is the one and only, the Canadian, Doug Tilly. He's Doug Tilly, number one super guy. I like how I just used Canadian like it was like a pejorative. (laughs) I think of it as the worst insult you can call a person at this point. (laughs) The Canadian. Well, I'm an undercover American today uh, on our very special episode of No Budget Nightmares. This might be the most special of special episodes, which considering we just came off a few episodes ago, a super special episode, it just goes to show that 2013 is the year of No Budget Nightmares. It is. It's very exciting. It is exciting. Doug, why don't you tell our great audience uh, what we will be talking about today? (laughs) Our audience isn't that great, but But yes. Why don't you tell the three cool people in our All right, listen up, people. Uh, Something very special has happened on No Budget Nightmares. I think we hinted at it last time. Uh, Those who are on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash No Budget Nightmares, they already know. On this episode, this very special episode, we are featuring Todd Sheets Goblin from 1993. Very exciting because uh, everyone who listens already knows our fandom and appreciation of Todd Sheets. But that's nothing. I mean, it's something, but it's kind of nothing because... But wait, there's more! There's more. After we speak about the film, you'll be hearing an exclusive interview between Mo, who's special, and me, who's kind of <laughs> special, and the director himself, Mr. Todd Sheets. This is a big get for us. It's a big uh, fucking deal. Anyone who's listened even for a short amount of time knows that this is something we've always wanted to do. And uh, at the time that we're actually uh, recording this, we've already done the interview. So we know what he's going to say, and it's very exciting. Some exclusive mm. news gets revealed about his latest film, uh, which is, I mean, this is amazing. <laughs> It's really incredible. It was. It's way more than I was ever expecting. You know. Yeah, and and Todd has been very gracious. Uh, you know, we did want him for our anniversary show. At the time, I was really disappointed we couldn't get him. But now it's actually sort of a. In retrospect, it's great because it meant that we got to spend even more time talking to him. Yeah. And uh, and now we can officially call him a friend of the show. He is friend of the show. At least he is until we talk about his film Goblin from nineteen ninety. Look, 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 look. If he if he if he doesn't hate you at least after Nightmare Asylum, 
I think it's fa- fairly safe to say that he's going to be pretty cool with our with our uh, uh, breakdown of of Goblin. I don't want to reveal anything that Todd actually says in his interview. It's actually fascinating stuff. I, I was really interested to hear his thoughts generally. Yeah, Doug and actually ever... shut up for a second. Yeah, well, he had he was saying interesting things, he not was. like those other guys we interviewed. <laughs> not like that John. Not like that John guy. Uh, he. he He's very honest about his feelings regarding these early films like Nightmare Asylum, uh, like Sorority Babes and the Dance of Death, and like Goblin in particular, a film that he actually disowns. We want to make it very clear that when we talk about these films uh, and we criticize certain aspects of them, we're not uh, making any judgment call on the Todd Sheets of 2013. No. <laughs> uh, this is, this, we make it very clear, we try to anyway, that this, these films were made at a time when even... Trying to make a film uh, with with this budget, with non-professional actors, with non-professional equipment, and getting it out there is such a massive undertaking and a huge feat. Uh, I am always impressed with the movies that we see from the early '90s, late it, '80s. It's very, it's very easy to forget, you know, like how hard it was to do anything back then. You know, and, and, and I mean, even for somebody like me who has experience, you know, like dealing with, you know, with trying to figure out how to fucking edit something, you know, on VHS, you know, uh, back in the, you know, even, even, even into like the late nineties, you know, it was still, it was still very hard to find, you know, to find an editing bay to use, and, and, you know, and like digital really wasn't happening yet. Yeah. And so, and, it's, so it's really, it's really amazing to, to, to think of, to think that anything was ever done on a non-professional, you know, level. I mean, you know, on like a on like such a low budget. I mean, this is the beginning of DIY filmmaking. Uh, yeah. the, and and it, it we've seen it, the inspiration that it's had on people and we talked with Todd uh, about that. But uh but uh, we'll also be very honest in regards to our feelings yeah, uh, I mean... about Goblin. And, and and like we said, Todd is very honest about it too. But that said, as we go into detail, there's lots that is very interesting about Goblin as well. Yep. Uh, you know what? This I love the fact I love covering Todd Sheets movies because you just never know what we're going to get. But uh, we just want to do a quick kind of shout out to uh, to his latest film, House of Forbidden Secrets. Yes. Yeah, which uh, is like this is Goblin. This is from 1993. House of Forbidden Secrets is Todd Sheets' first film since 2005. Uh, and it uh, it features some really amazing people like Diane Thorne and uh, George Hardy from uh, Troll Two. This it's going to be something really special. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. Yeah, and I, I posted uh, I posted this on our group page already. But uh, it, you know, so so if you're hearing this and you're not a, not a member of our group yet, uh, go onto Facebook and like uh, the uh, the House of Forbidden Secrets page because. You know, I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna state this right off of the top of the episode because I want you to do this right now. Todd we, told, Todd told us. Todd told us to do it, and now we listen to what Todd says. Todd told us that if it gets to a thousand likes, he's gonna put the trailer up. I want to see it right and now. I want to see that so bad. It's Mo, Mo like, are you telling me that the reason I'm not seeing the trailer right now is because of these assholes who are listening? Yeah, and won't go and like it on Facebook. Yeah, douchebags, go like it. Fuck is wrong with you? The fuck. All right, that's enough profanity. It's at now. about it's at about six hundred and fifty ish likes. So let's, I mean, come on, it's just a couple hundred. Let's get it up there. Certainly, our uh, <laughs> influence on the world as a whole can get that up to a thousand. I would imagine as soon as this. Uh, yeah, I'd be sure released. if we posted on enough touch sheets message boards. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> 
So look forward to the Tachi's interview. But first, Woo. we need to discuss Goblin. Goblin. Uh, featuring our very good friend, uh, let's see if I screw up his name, Derek Bernier. 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 Bur- it's like Bernier. 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 I'll get it now that you've said that. Yeah. Well, good... he, he said that. Yeah, I, don't... I try not to listen to what anyone who isn't you or Tachi <laughs> says. <laughs> uh, uh, it features our very good friend, Derek Bernier. <laughs> I'm still Canadian. I can't help it. I really can't. I'm trying. I'm really. I'm trying very, very hard. Uh, right. Goblin. We'll just jump into it. Is that okay with yeah. you? Yeah. Let me tell you a story about Goblin. Uh, <laughs> Goblin was made, by the way, right in the kind of the meaty period of Tachi's films that did uh, produce things like Nightmare Asylum, uh, just a few years after Zombie Rampage. And it, you see a lot of the same faces that appeared in those other films pop up here. Uh, and we'll try to point some of those out to you, uh, in, in, including Matthew Lewis, who uh, played Spider in Nightmare Asylum and was in Prehistoric uh, Bimbos and uh, and uh, the Sorority Babes and the Tensathon of Death. Yep. Wow, I remember too much about well, that. Well, I, I, I was going to say, I think Matt Lewis has actually been in every movie, every Todd Sheets movie we've covered so far. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the next guy we got to track down. <laughs> I think so. Well, Derek, help us out with that. <laughs> Todd Sheets Goblin starts with a, a man thistling. <laughs> He's just whacking at the thistles. Uh he, he he is. I don't know what thistling is. Can you explain it? You're you're a farm boy, right, Mo? Dude, I'm from suburban Connecticut. Mm, yes. <laughs> okay. That that sounds about right. <laughs> well, this basically, guy. Basically, what he's doing is he's is he's kind of thra- thrashing down the grass. You know, it's, right. He's, it's got it's gotten out of control. He's 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 breaking it down, and he's kind of pissed off about it. He's very upset. He actually voices his uh, his. Uh, dis- you can stick those damn thistles up your ass. The first couple of uh, uh, he, he says you can stick the damn thistles up your ass. Um, the first couple of audio clips that I have are are really really soft, but they, wow. I fixed it so the later ones aren't so bad. You fixed it, thank you, Mo. I had to, man. The entire movie's audio is way low. <laughs> um, a lot of these early scenes are very representative of the kind of of uh, filmmaking that we saw in things like Nightmare Asylum. Uh, this this gentleman who hates thistling. Um, <laughs> he hears something out in the because uh, he's outside. He hears something out in the darkness, and he is suddenly grabbed by a big hairy arm. And we we get the first, uh, it, you know, I actually for some reason I find it very comforting now when we start hearing the uh, Mars uh, theme. <laughs> the the, the uh, was it. Is it the the Devourer World? No, I can't remember what it's called. Anyway, this is Gustav Holst, uh, public domain classical music that that plays in most of the Tachis films from this period, and it starts playing while we see a hand grab. Uh, I guess is it a thresher? Is that what it is? That that motorized chainsaw looking thing? It's a hedge clipper. Okay. Yeah. See, I you are a farm person. I just don't know. And we get the first at this moment uh, of. What will become a uh, a motif throughout this film? Just ridiculous. <laughs> Which involves somebody's stomach being cut open. And various forms of meat being pulled out. Yeah, it's meat. Like, it's it's not organ... I mean, it's some of it's organ meat, but yeah. it's just kind of random pieces of meat, and it, it will just be mangled and... <laughs> <laughs> I love... I, I think my favorite thing about this movie is the blood... Yeah, because the blood doesn't look like blood at all. It just—I it, mean—it kind of just looks like 
slightly colored water, which is probably, I don't I'm assuming what it is. But you know, like with the low budget things, generally when you have the the fake blood, it's usually like a colored sort of Cairo syrup, you know? Sure. And, yes. in, and in this case, it's so thin that you're like, like, what did he, how did he make that? And I kind of wish I'd thought to ask him that, but <laughs> it's just really it's super thin. It just, I mean, it just looks like water. You know, and there's I, lots of it. There's <laughs> lots of it. Just splurting all over the place. Well, uh, and maybe when... And both Mo and I are watching a DVD transfer from a VHS tape that, that already looks a couple of generations old. Yeah, that probably didn't help. <laughs> <laughs> so it probably started out red, but who knows what color we're getting. Yeah, it, it's gotten kind of uh, watery looking. But there's a lot of it, and that's the main thing. Yeah, it kind of looks like the blood underneath a steak, you know, that's been sitting for too many days. Sure, it like exactly sort of like, does that. Yeah, like which, that kind of brown. Yeah, it's actually a little more gross to think about that, to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, and from there, that is like the big opening moment, and that goes to the title card of Goblin, Goblin. written by uh, Roger Williams, uh, a.k.a. Todd Sheets, and directed by Todd Sheets. Woohoo! Yeah, and and the names that you see in the credits, in the opening credits and in the closing credits, you see them again and again because, you know, this was a family affair, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, this is this is one of those prototypical Todd Sheets films as well because it has uh, music from Enochian Key. Uh, we have a lot of those cast members that we see in those other films who also work in, in behind-the-scenes capacity. Mm-hmm. And we have the man himself making an appearance. Yeah, we'll talk about that one when we get there. <laughs> you know, Mo... Got a lot to say about that. <laughs> you know, Mo, the thing I noticed most about the setup of this film, and, and we're going to get into the meat of it now, uh, <laughs> is that it's actually a little bit like uh, Sledgehammer, uh, one of our recently featured films. Yeah. In that it's like, you know, a group of... of not kids necessarily, people a little bit older. In this case, a married couple and their friends. They're moving into a house uh, with the idea that they're going to party it up a little bit in their strictly early 90s way um, <laughs> involves eating pizza and sitting around and blasting whoop there it is <laughs> listening to color me bad as loud as they want <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it's that classic horror movie setup of bringing a bunch of young people into a location and then, you know, killing them off one by one. That's the best way to do it. It is the best way of doing it. And these early moments are meant to uh, distinguish the personalities of the various characters we encounter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's normally how it would happen. That's how it's supposed to happen. Uh, we're going to have a lot of trouble. I'm, gonna t- I'm talking to you now, listener. Uh, well, distinguish. You, you, you could be listening. You could be talking to me just as well, man. <laughs> I have... I. I will openly and willingly admit that there are only two characters in this film who I actually know what their names are. And they it, it, and they die pretty early. It's extreme <laughs> it's extremely difficult. I I I have mentioned this on previous episodes that I'm kind of neurotic about trying to know people's names because I know I have to go to the through the purpose of, of going through the plot. Yeah. So I try to have them in my head. But some characters in this film, their names are not even mentioned until the halfway point or sometimes later. Or not uh, at all. So it's very hard to identify them, but we'll do the best we can under the circumstances. But the important thing to know is that we start out with um, three guys and uh, three girls. There's six at first. Which you would would never tell. You would never know because you never see any more than two of them at a time. You know, and more often than not, it's it's sort of like this ponytailed uh, pretty boy and his... 
lady friend who you, who you see the most. Like, Everyone's a pretty boy to you, Mo. Well, everybody, everybody's pretty compared to me, so it's fine. Aww. Uh, oh, I'm so sad. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, but there's this really great shot early on in the film where they're sitting on a couch. And, like, there's this whole conversation going around them that they're not even really part of. But the camera's just on them. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's hard to stretch these things out to 75 minutes, I'll tell you that yeah, much. Yeah. Well, that ponytailed a pretty boy that you mentioned, that's Larry. And Larry and his girlfriend, who uh, I can't remember her name, I think she's Tammy. Yeah, uh, yeah, Tammy. She's Tammy. Uh, sorry, sorry, I said girlfriend, might be wife. They're moving into Whatever. this new place. And uh, their friends, uh, Jeff and Jerry, are uh, are accompanying them, helping them move. And there's the two female friends as well. This... Uh, we we're going to get a little bit of backstory in terms of what this has any connection to a uh, a goblin but mm-hmm. the important thing to remember is that once they come in and they're kind of you know sitting around they uh they go into the basement and they find an old suitcase that basement was my favorite location in the entire movie it's pretty like, great oh it's so great and it's like creepy as shit and it just works what I love about that basement is we see it a little bit later, yeah. but it's uh, somehow accessed from an upstairs <laughs> doorway. <laughs> someone says that this this is an entrance to the basement, and I guess the idea is someone goes through a door and then went downstairs, but they don't show that part. So yeah. someone opens an upstairs door and goes into a basement. <laughs> nice. Spatial continuity. So, oh, what they, you, so what do they? So what do they? I thought you were actually telling me to. Sh- oh no! Come on! I can't believe I listened to you. You walk all over me on this I, podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you need to cease and desist that sort of talk, sir. All right. Let's. Uh, <laughs> we don't need to tell you what they found in that suitcase in that basement because they tell us. Let's hear it. Nothing important. Just a bunch of old robes, a book, and a rusty ass survival knife, and an old necklace. And an old necklace. And an old necklace. Yeah, so they found a bunch of robes and a book and a rusty old survival knife and an old necklace in this. uh, And these things, as you can imagine, will become a little bit important. A little bit. Sort of. (laughs) Massively. (laughs) Well, uh, the blonde girl, that's what I'll refer to her as, she's a bit curious about the book. So she decides that she's going to read it. Never a good idea. Never. Uh, and, in fact, she actually reads from the book to the crowd because she's getting a little into it. That sounds like fun. Cool. Hey, you guys listen to this. 20 years ago, this guy... Well, I just want to c- clarify that, that that sounds like fun. Cool part. <laughs> it's from... Is, is like the tail end of a conversation you don't hear the beginning of. <laughs> Action. Black magic. says here that he's trying to spell to help his crops grow. So, 20 years ago, through some use of black magic, brought a demon up from hell. Maybe it's like in Zombie Rampage. Remember, they, they used magic with the hopes of getting some sort of reward. In that case, bringing their uh, punk friend back. And, uh, <laughs> but instead, they, they raised the dead in that case. And in this case, they brought forward some sort of horrible goblin. Shlooby? What was that? <laughs> huh? What was that just then? That was Shlooby. Oh, really? <laughs> that was my heater. I shut it off. <laughs> we can cut this part out. <laughs> Shlooby. 
Uh, <laughs> I like how it says, uh, it sounds like you're reading from a Stephen King novel. Yeah, that's right. There's a few uh, pop culture references in this. You've got to remember, 1993, it, not every movie was doing it at that time. Yeah. Um, so they learn uh, from the book, just kind of the broad strokes, it gets uh, elaborated on a little bit later, that this goblin was uh, trapped in a well. And <laughs> oh well. <laughs> but uh, we we still actually... making references to episode two. <laughs> There's some deep cuts you're getting into. Mom. I know, right? Um, we then cut to a different household. It actually is a little confusing at first. Yeah, uh, I, yeah, exactly. Because like I knew that there was the couple who were sitting on the couch, and I knew that there were supposed to be people sitting opposite of them that you couldn't see. So for a second, I thought these two were the other two people in that conversation. <laughs> You know, and then the woman gets up to go wash dishes, you know, and she seems to have a very one-track mind about these dishes. You know, like, that's all she seems to care about. You know, the husband gets up to leave, and she's like, honey, get some dishwashing detergent. You know. Did the woman look familiar to you, Mo? No. That woman, I believe, is the same actress who was in a very uh, important moment in uh, Zombie Rampage, where she is on the phone and uh, is attacked by zombies near the end of the film, and she has sort of a monotone voice in that. She does much better here, mm. uh, though she uh, ha- unfortunately meets a similar fate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, she's, she uh, is interested in washing dishes. Her husband goes out to get some dishwashing soap and go for a little walk, uh, but... Uh, I guess we'll get back to them in just a little bit. Yeah, because it cuts back to the, the the younger folks, and they're eating what I'm assuming is pizza. It but looks every, like pizza. Yeah, it looks like pizza. But the but uh, Tammy's saying her mom made it, and like everybody hates it. Like everybody's kind of like talking about how gross it is, and nobody wants to eat it. It's like it's well. Uh, thankfully, there's a really easy solution to that. Let's throw it away. See, I was right. That's right. That's her solution to everything. Um, Fucking Tammy. Let, let's face it. The uh, and you'll see more examples of it coming up. The acting in this film is rough. It might actually be a little rougher than even some of the other Tachi's films that we've Especially seen. Especially Tammy. Mm, Tammy's really she's not good. Yeah, I mean, uh, you can't, can't really knock her. She's trying, but man, no, I'll knock it. She's really <laughs> terrible. Because Matthew Lewis, who's in all of these films, he's not very good either, but he's enthusiastic. He was really good in Nightmare Asylum. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, he's really, like, spotty. You know, sometimes, mm. sometimes he's really on, sometimes he's not. And this one is he's kind of half there. <laughs> well, uh, we get, of course, uh, a tease in this film where they we think that the creature has already come upon them. They hear sort of a weird noise while they're eating in a yeah. scene that actually is really similar to one in the, in the Evil Dead. Uh, and they all go to check it out, including Larry with his ponytail. There's a great, uh, there's a great line where the guy goes, well, one of the, one of the other guys goes first. He goes, wait, this isn't my house. You go first. <laughs> uh, and uh, Larry goes to check it out, and uh, a hand comes out and grabs him, just, yeah. like in all, just like in most of the murder scenes in this film. But it's not the goblin, who we haven't seen yet. <laughs> it's actually someone else. Who is it, Mo? It's Derek Bernier. <laughs> no, it's Derek Bernier, friend Bernier. of uh, No Budget Nightmares. Now, I have, is, yeah, do you know what his character's name is in this? Because I, uh, really, I really on don't. the IMDb page, it is he is not given a name. So uh, <laughs> there's there's a moment a little later where I think they refer to him as Charlie, but I believe Derek also plays the Goblin in the film. So that's a much more memorable part. Nice. <laughs> than, than this character, the Goblin's who, awesome. 
Yes. Who this character we shouldn't get too attached to for obvious reasons. <laughs> he has a uh, long hair and glasses and um stonewashed pants. And stonewashed pants and is very much of the ugly kid Joe era. <laughs> I asked uh, I asked Derek about those pants. He says he might still have them. Mm, well, let's let's hope he <laughs> Let's hope he can pull them out for an upcoming cameo. <laughs> we can see the return of quote Charlie unquote, <laughs> which uh, which might be difficult uh, as you will see momentarily. <laughs> so we go back to the couple. Uh, of course, it's just the the wife in this case doing mm-hmm. some dishes, uh, and this is when we get the first and probably the most memorable appearance of the goblin. Well, I mean, before the Goblin shows up, though, uh, we get a great shot. Uh, like, they kind of do, like, this weird kind of, like, alternate angle. Mm-hmm. And it's the first time in the film where you hear Todd go, Cut! <laughs> yeah, there are moments. There are sometimes moments after edits where you can actually hear the dialogue before the edit yeah. being spoken again. But uh, as is the reality of 1993 editing equipment. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so this woman, who uh, uh, has a really unfortunate day, she uh, the the goblin who yeah, I don't know what I don't know what goes on with her. Like she's like washing her dishes and then she like she starts acting really weird and she starts like touching her head for some yeah, reason. Yeah, it's kind of strange. It, there's there's some kind of acting yeah. going on. It's 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 it's, it's almost very like you know it, it, it kind of reminded me of like that scene in Ed Wood where where Ed Wood is directing like Tor Johnson. He's like he's like you're but, angry. not too much, not yeah, that angry. angry, but not that angry. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're the gro- growliest impression of Ed Wood just then. <laughs> <laughs> that's my that's my impression of me. Mm-hmm. That's you. That's you directing. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the goblin in this film, it's his powers. If he has any, are sort of roughly defined. Uh, he's mostly just a killer, uh, and the way that he kills people, as we already saw, he rips out their guts. In this case, he slams his woman against the wall, which is really cool looking. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. blood everywhere, uh, and, and like then he, does he use? You know, I don't know his his long fingernails, or no. maybe he'll bite her or something like that. No, no, no. no he gra- u- he uses what every kitchen has a, has readily available: a plugged in power drill. A plugged in power drill. He he uses the power of electricity. I think it's brilliant. Well, let's explain also what the goblin looks like. <laughs> Describe the goblin, Mo. Uh, I hmm. basically he he looks like a guy. Wearing like a poncho made of fur, and um, and a mask of some sort. Say, twelve-year-old Douglas. That okay. would be me. Now. Wanted wanted to <laughs> wanted to go for Halloween as a member of Guar, but had no money to do it. Yeah, there you go. And uh, and also really wanted to wear shorts and a t-shirt underneath the costume <laughs> <laughs> that may or may not be visible for most of it. That that's kind of what the uh, goblin looks like oh, uh, when no, it's no, when no, it's no, no, no. <laughs> when it's when it's from the neck up. It looks pretty good. Yeah. When it's running around in the darkness, it looks all right. When it's walking around in light, it's... it suddenly looks like Derek Bernier in uh, <laughs> in a half-assed guar costume. Yeah. <laughs> but who cares about that? Because he's Balzac the not so mighty. <laughs> well, we're about to get to see some uh, obviously Lucio Fulci influenced eyeball violence. Mm. Yeah, because this electric drill isn't just going to go into someone's stomach; it's going to go into their fucking eye. I love eyeball violence. 
Well, we all remember the classic eyeball violence from uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie, uh, and how wonderful it looks when that uh, wooden sliver goes into that woman's eye. But yeah, my buddy, my buddy Brett has a uh, clock, like a wall clock, and the second <laughs> it, it's zombie uh, themed, and the and the second hand is the long sliver with the eyeball at the end. It's Th- awesome. That is amazing. It's, it really is amazing. <laughs> Forget listening to the rest of this podcast. Let's go find that. I want that on my wall. Um, Andrew Gore, I believe, made it. Oh, he's on. He's he's online. Wow, we are we are pimping everything today. I'll pimp everything and everyone. Well, the eyeball effect in this film is not quite as impressive, but hey, it's an eyeball. It's a fucking uh, drill going into it, and then there's a bunch of meat on their face. This (laughs) this woman who must have been incredibly patient to allow all this meat to be put on her face. uh, It's 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 a fine moment in cinema. (laughs) (laughs) Let me explain to you what a co-host's job is, Mo. I was throwing it over to you for a moment. Oh. No? All right. Well, let me tell you what the (laughs) goblin does after fucking up this woman's face. What he does is, and this is great. It was so great I made an animated GIF of it, and you can find it over over on our uh, No Budget Nightmares uh, Facebook page. He finds that the uh, screwdriver has a little bit of meat attached to the end of it's it. There's like a little gore, a little bit of gore. It looks like a, uh, it almost looks like a, like a chicken breast. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So he decides he's going to spin it around. <laughs> this, this is a uh, delightfully uh, pranksterish goblin. And uh, I kind of wish sometimes that we saw more of that sense of humor yeah. in the rest of the film. The, I would actually say that the peak of this film, in terms of its watchability, was at that exact moment. Oh, without a doubt, yeah. Mm-hmm. It was a great moment. Uh, <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, we have to go back to the interchangeable gang that are in the other house. In fact, you know what, this... what, what, you got you to gotta tell me what happens here, because <laughs> like at the end of the scene, does the goblin turn her gas stove on? Like, what happens here? Like, like it seems so weird. Yeah, he does turn on her oven, doesn't he? Yeah. I don't have any details on that, but he doesn't like roast her head or anything. No, no, and it's not like it's not like he does it to blow up her house or anything like that. He just turns her turns the the thing. We get a shot of the stovetop, you know, and then it cuts over to the other to the other house. I, like I wonder if I wonder if there was supposed to be something that was going to happen there and it just never happened. I mean, even stranger than that, Mo, is that the implication from the next edit is that all the people in the other house are watching this on television, that this is part of a film that they're seeing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which doesn't make any sense because we saw the couple sitting on a couch earlier, and at that point, the people in the other house were not watching a film. Yeah. <laughs> so we're playing with space and time now. Anything is possible in the uh, in the nineteen ninety three version of Todd Sheets. Well, the, the big the biggest problem that this movie has going against it is that is that the two quote unquote locations. Look exactly the same, so yeah. it's it's kind of tough. You got you got to use what you have. No, and that's cool. And that's I mean, like use of space was amazing. You know, <laughs> uh, the space itself, not so much. <laughs> well, uh, the uh, the film that these people are watching, which we might have just watched a piece of, uh, they have some opinions on it. And uh, remember, nineteen ninety three. Let's hear it. Oh. Can't watch that stuff. It is really gross. Zombie movies are the greatest. I just love Lucia Fulci's zombie movies. 
I just love the way he pronounces Lucio Fulci. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love how he has to say, zombie movies are the greatest. I just love Lucio Fulci's zombie movies. you got to say zombie movies twice. But hey. the way he says it is brilliant. Uh, <laughs> zombie movies are the greatest. <laughs> uh, so... By the way, if they were watching that scene from that we just watched, that didn't involve a zombie. So maybe it's even more confusing now that I think about it. Who knows? <laughs> so um, we and, and to make it even more confusing, is we now go, we go back to the other house again. We go back to the other house again, and the husband returns home and gives the greatest line delivery I've heard in ages. Well, at least since the tranny line from a certain film that shall remain unmentioned. Mm-hmm. It's close. Honey, I'm home. Oh my god! No! Oh no! Oh my god! I mean, <laughs> honey, I'm home. Oh my god! No! <laughs> He's rightfully upset. I mean, he not only comes home to find his wife like mutilated, theoretically, but he also forgot the... to get the dishwashing detergent. Yeah, and someone theoretically t- turned the oven on. That's got to be upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> what <reason>. a w- <laughs> my wife's dead and a waste of gas. Well, he doesn't have long to uh, grieve her death because he immediately gets stabbed. I, I think the implication is up the ass and through the through the stomach or something like that with some sort of trident spear. I don't know if it was a trident spear. I thought it was like a fireplace poker. All right, let's go with fireplace poker. That yeah. makes a lot more sense. <laughs> and, and no, it's not, it's not through the ass. I mean, they clearly show it out his back. Is it through his back? Yeah, it's, just, it's... it's just straight through his back in, a, in an upward angle. It's not up his ass. All right. No, they hey. they, they say they save that that sort of thing for later. For later, which which is coming up <laughs> very soon. Yeah. <laughs> not much later. Uh, yeah, not much later. They're still watching movies back at the other household. Uh, they're drinking. They're having a toast to the new house. Everyone's drinking out of mugs, which, by the way, is very realistic because when you move into a new place, you wouldn't necessarily have a lot of, uh, you know, dishes and cups and glasses and whatnot. I would. Yeah, you probably would. Uh, <laughs> but they're still watching a movie, but this part's great, because they're not just watching any movie, because one of the characters says... Oh, they're not... Oh, not... Oh, they killed a baby. <laughs> which implies that they're watching Todd Sheet's own zombie rampage, where they do indeed kill a baby. But they don't actually mention anything about... I mean, like, they don't show it. Like, there's mm-hmm. no television. You know, they they don't show a television at the very least. They just say, "Oh, he killed a baby." Ugh. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I like it that it doesn't. In most of the films that we have seen like this, they would have put a clip from their own film in it. Or, oh, well, I mean, or in the case of Todd Sheets, he would have put a clip from a David Dakota film. <laughs> yes, something yeah. like that. Nothing wrong with that. No, no, I would <laughs> I, believe me. I would totally do it myself. Well, at this, by the way, this, we're gonna we're transitioning into the horror now. It might be hard to tell because it looks a lot. Uh, very similar to the not horror <laughs> portions of the film, <laughs> but they hear a noise outside once again, uh, and they're going to go check it out. And they suspect that it might be some meddling kids, damn punks. Yeah, some damn punks outside the household making a lot of noise, trying to scare them. Because most neighborhoods have kids doing that all the time. Mine does. I, I mean, bet it's, it does. I mean, it's usually me, but still, yeah. Or your own kids. <laughs> uh, so they're going to check it out. Uh, they kind of split up a little bit. Uh, Jeff, uh, played by Matthew Lewis, he decides he's going to check it out himself while the rest of them kind of, one of them puts on a Halloween mask and they're going to try to scare uh, scare the kids. Now, when Jeff goes outside to check on things, he does something very unusual. 
he he goes outside and he can't see anything and there's sort of a ladder that's propped up against the wall well he does what any he does what any other person would do he decides he's going to walk up the ladder backwards yeah, he starts walking up the ladder backwards for some reason. It really makes and, no sense. And he also starts getting really scared, even though there's no real reason for him to get scared at this point. Because... No, there's a total reason for him to get scared. He's walking up a ladder <laughs> backwards. Yeah, he's putting himself in more and more danger. <laughs> um, and he is also putting him, in, himself in a perfect position to have his throat grabbed by the goblin. <laughs> Uh, and it's uh, <laughs> my impression. Yeah, it's accurate. It's pretty good. Uh, so the rest of them in the house uh, actually hear him screaming for a second, but they think that's just him scaring off the kids outside. Those kids that are just theoretical. Because he's a merry prankster. Yes, he's 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 funny. He's a funny guy. What walking up ladders backwards like a big goof? What a goofball! Yeah. Well, this goofball has a very uh, unfortunate end because uh, he just as gets torn to shreds. Yeah, he gets torn to shreds. He has his guts torn out while he screams, and this is uh, a very extended scene of of hands squishing meat and just throwing it. Yeah, just tossing it, sometimes throwing it at his face while he's laying there. Uh, he manages to hold out uh, before dying quite a long time, considering that most of his entrails are out at the time that he's screaming. You can survive for a couple of days without your entrails. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he, does, he doesn't need all of them is what no. I'm trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is how most of the deaths in the film are and will be. Yeah. There's nothing particularly interesting about this one because there's no implement of death. It's just hands ripping him apart. Yeah. And you don't really see the goblin during this either. No, you don't. In fact, in fact, um there is sort of a shot where you can see the t-shirt, like you can see right. up the guy up the arm and you can clearly see that there that that uh that I'm assuming it's Derek in this particular shot, is not wearing the goblin costume. Yeah, because you would have been able to see yeah. at least a, a portion of the costume at that point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then we get a... Uh, because the rest of the group, they don't know anything bad is going on. They're just kind of... You know, it's business as usual for them. And what business in this case involves is uh, the blonde girl, uh, Jody, I think is her name. She goes into the bathroom to change. Yeah. Um, what I love about this scene is that there's only one reason why it exists you know uh which will happen next but she goes yeah she goes into the bathroom she decides for she decides for some reason to take off i think she was wearing like a skirt before and she decides to put on uh, a very uh early 90s looking pair of uh high-waisted shorts with a fantastic belt I mean, I thought, and I imagine most people watching it would have thought that this was going to transition into some sort of shower scene. Yeah, I was kind of thinking that this that we were going to get a little nudie action because she's not wearing a bra. And she starts undressing, and yeah. what do you expect? What do you expect? But she, but she just changes into different clothes. Yeah. I mean, it's, well, fanta- it's fantastic, but still ridiculous. Skirting expectations. <laughs> Literally. Yes, literally. <laughs> but she has to change clothes because then she proceeds to go out looking for Jeff. In fact, she not only goes outside to look for Jeff, she does exactly what Jeff did, which is go outside and start climbing that fucking ladder. Yeah, where she gets attacked. But not only does she get attacked, she gets attacked um, 
you know, by a, like a little hand sickle, like, or a scythe, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I would have went with scythe, but sickle's a good word, too. Yeah. Um, and, and this is probably one, this is, this is the first time in the movie that I actually cringed. Yes. At the death, because she gets stabbed right in the vagina. Yeah, she gets uh she she gets vagina stabbed in the scene. Yeah. Uh and this this is a, a memorable moment in the history of films and certainly in general, yeah. In general, uh because this curved implement of death is really, you know, it's really designed for vagina stabbing. Oh, without a doubt. Yeah, I mean, yeah like, it works really well in that context. You would you would think that Todd Sheets had this designed specifically to stab Jody in the vagina. <laughs> now, don't get us wrong. Uh, we we a we don't support the stabbing of vaginas with any sharp implements other than a penis, other than a penis or some sort of scissoring action. But uh, <laughs> but in this particular scene, the stabbing isn't very explicit at all. You just see it kind of go up between like jean shorts yeah. or whatever. Yeah, it's actually uh, it's actually so not specific. Uh, Explicit that I posted a screenshot of it on my Facebook page. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that there's a hole in these shorts that meat can be pulled out of. Oh, and the meat pulling out scene is cringeworthy. Yeah, it's rough, man. Yeah, it really is. There's there's a couple. There's only a couple of scenes in this movie where I'm really like, wow, that's really kind of going too far. But in, I mean, like, perfect amount of too far. And, and, uh, and yeah, and, and watching watching the goblin pull hunks of meat from the vaginal area of a woman who he just stabbed in the vag with a scythe is, that's something you just, you're not going to see anyplace else. I don't think I've ever heard anyone describe something in that way <laughs> that was accurate to what he was actually describing. Mm. <laughs> So uh, Jody, who you just learned the name of, the blonde girl, she's dead. She's gone. So uh, we're when, down. When you have that much meat pulled from your vagina, yeah, you tend to die. That's it. That's the rule. So uh, take heed, young women. <laughs> Never climb up a ladder after somebody has just been killed. All right. Now this is another fav- favorite scene of mine is about to come up. So the rest of the crowd inside, they think that both Jody and Jeff are still playing a game on them, that they're just kind of playing possum uh, and that they're they're trying to scare them in some way. In fact, they even say that, that Jody and Jeff, they'd be willing to wait outside all night just to get a good scare on them, Dude. which, by the way, would make for a shitty party for someone just to wait outside all <laughs> night just to scare them. But uh, they all kind of decide that Jerry who's wearing sort of like a, a tube top uh, and like he has a, a tattoo. A tube top? Did I say tube top? Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> He's wearing a tank top. Tank top, of course. Uh, I wish he was wearing a tube top. I know. Um, he is going to go outside and check on them and find out what the heck is going on. This is the most strangely filmed and edited portion of this part of the film. This is, this is how strange it is. Like you can, like I'll play the clip right now, and you can actually hear in the clip how oddly edited this scene is. Okay. Jody and Jeff are out here playing possum or something. I'll go get him. Hey, what are you making for? Gosh, Jody and Jeff, they're dead! <laughs> <laughs> now, <laughs> it's such
such a, I mean, it's very odd because he says, I'm going to go check on them, right? He thinks that they're playing possum, but he doesn't go outside. He, the, it, it's edited to look like he just suddenly turns around and says, Jody, Jeff, they're dead. Yeah, exactly. And the screaming is this sort of synchronized screaming of the women, and they all run, <laughs> and it looks like something out of like a Scooby-Doo cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> they even run past Derek Bernier, uh, who is uh, looking in the fridge, and he doesn't know what the fuck is going on. <laughs> It's uh, it. He actually stops them to ask what's going on. Yes. <laughs> uh, I love how they run into the other room, which is I don't know why. Uh, is, is this? Do they run to the other room or do they run to the other house at this point? No, they run to the other house. Okay, so they run to the other house, which, like you mentioned before, looks exactly like their house. So it's always really hard to tell where the fuck they are. Yeah. Um, and and I think it's Larry who who suggests that they all just take a moment and try to think about it logically. But one of the girls says, "Because are you nuts? Two of our best friends just got killed, and you want us to think logically?" <laughs> like the idea that she is, you know, intentionally trying to not be logical. But his response to that is brilliant too. He goes, "He says to her, quit being like a bimbo in a B movie." <laughs> I love that line. Well, we all know that in these Tachis films at this time period that there's always a reference to being in a B-movie or this is just like something out of a B-movie. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so they're inside the neighbor's house. What neighbor? Is is it? Oh, you know what? You know what? They're not in the neighbor's house yet. Because they call because they call nine one one next from their house. They go over to the neighbor's house when they when that line goes dead. Right. So the and and yeah. So they call the police. Yeah. Uh, and they actually do get through for a moment, um, and but then the line goes dead. That nine one one operator is the is so bad at her job. <laughs> you know, like like anytime somebody calls, she thinks it's a joke. She's like she like is wondering if they're being serious. You know, like uh, like I mean, if, he, he, it's very subtle, but she, like you can tell that she even asked him. If if she, if he could be put on hold, and yeah, he's like, and he's, like he's like, no, I can't be put on hold. And when it cuts to her later, of course, she's the only one there. But it's like, there's no other calls. It's yeah. just them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so they all go upstairs in the neighbor's house and they find the body. So I guess what they were watching earlier wasn't a movie because they actually do see the corpses yeah. of uh, though we don't get to see them. Uh, and <laughs> then they all go, uh, I think, outside, don't they? Because they they're gonna go look for. Derek Bernier's character, who may or may not be called Charlie. Who knows? <laughs> this this is again very strange. I, I I apologize to anyone listening who, who it seems well, this like particular we're just jumping scene, around. This particular we're not jumping around. This is exactly how the movie's going. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like we're we're going through the movie beat for beat. I mean, it's not you know we're not jumping or skipping anything. But in this particular scene, I don't think they're looking for for Derek. I think they're running to the next house to see if they can find somebody. Right. And and, and then what what happens is that um is that everybody except quote unquote Charlie runs up ahead because one of the other girls who I guess is named Sherry uh, is getting ahead and they want to catch up with her because they don't want her to die. Well, oh, the, okay. the problem is, is in the, in the process of doing that, they leave Derek's character behind and, <laughs> um, and actually in my notes right here, it says, it says Derek Bernier's character gets left behind or gets left, uh, gets killed. Uh, I seriously have no idea what his character's name was. <laughs> He he was not very well developed, but he does get plenty of screen time. Theoretically, I guess pulling his own guts out. <laughs> and mean, meanwhile, as they're pulling his guts out, um, an incredible Anoki and Key song is playing in the background, and I have a clip of it. Let's hear it. 
Yes. Uh, that that you, scene you of that? Derek getting his you, you hear that? That's my lighter. <laughs> for the, the 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 awesome vocals of Todd Sheets there. I, I love an Okian key. I'll say that forever. Oh yeah, that, that's and and uh, considering some of the recycled music that we hear, it's always nice to hear something a bit more original on yeah. the soundtrack too. Um, I mean, there's, see, a, there's there, some, but there's some recycled Okian key in here too, though. Oh yeah. yeah, in fact, that's that song gets played again yeah, a yeah. little bit later. Um, Derek's uh, guts get pulled out over a period of like three or four minutes here. It's, it's, it's a lot of gore. It's a lot of gore. And in fact, it eventually goes to the old, um, what do they call them? Those like healers, the people who pull meat out of people's stomach. Psychic, uh, psychic surgeons. Psychic surgeons, that's right. Yeah. They do a little psychic surgery on uh, Derek's head where they pull out, I guess, meat out of his skull or yeah, something. Yeah, you, you had posed the questions like, is that supposed to be his brain? <laughs> 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 but uh, in fact, I made an animated GIF of this too, nice. of just the guts being being played around with, and cutting to Derek's shaking body, and then going back <laughs> to the guts again and again and again. So he's dead. So that's yeah. another one bites the dust. But it's okay that one character has been lost because we're about to gain another character, the character of uh, another neighbor, uh, Dorothy, who uh, thankfully says her us- name. She thankfully says her name and thankfully provides the exposition that the rest of the movie lacks in such well in all of quantities. in all of these movies like any in any horror film where there's some unknown entity there has to be the one person who can explain everything and it's usually usually an old man or an old woman um usually uh, in some kind of uh, capacity where they're like a voodoo high priest or some kind of like wizard in some secret society or something like that. In this case, you've got Dorothy, who's a middle-aged, you know, uh, maybe not even, uh, you know, a uh, woman who, I mean, at least she owns her own home. So they should have brought in that old couple from Sorority Babes and the dance of Right? Right. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, that would have been fantastic. Have that old man. Like the guy who was just surlier and surlier every time you saw him, that would have been brilliant. Call he me throw Dor- some of this magic dust. Call me Dolan. Dorothy. <laughs> Keep the name well, and everything. Uh, Dorothy, uh, who does provide some very important information, she is not. Her delivery is very interesting, but she's given some very strange and difficult lines to say. In fact, the very first thing she says, it sounds a little strange because of its weird rhyming scheme. You look like you're going to do hell. Have a seat, rest spell. <laughs> it sound like it's the first line of a song. <laughs> <laughs> you look like you've been through hell. Have a seat, rest a spell. <laughs> Jimmy Page guitar solo. So she proceeds to tell them uh, we what, some of what we already know from the beginning, which is that the uh, the farmer, uh, the neighbor, uh, ended up, and this apparently was only. Uh, not that long ago, just a few years, because yeah. she, uh, she, this farmer brought forth a goblin because he was he was trying to help his crops, but it accidentally called forth a goblin. Yeah, I don't think uh, he was trying to bring forth the goblin. He was right. trying. He was trying. He was having a problem because there was a drought, and he was uh, and he was trying to find a way to increase his yield. 
Right, and he was into white magic. Yeah, what he was calling white magic. Right. So he tried to come. He came up with a spell to save his crops, but he accidentally brought forth the goblin, which is and... not white magic. Right. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> uh, so she says that as she remembers it, and this is very strange that she starts with, "As I remember, it dug a hole in a cave into a well. So it dug itself into a well. Mm. Then her husband went over the next day." And found the remains of a small child and a trail of blood, and he found the goblin sleeping, so they sealed up the well with the goblin inside. Oh, well. Okay. So now that makes sense, except the fact that that she might have somehow... (laughs) She said, as I remember, like, you wouldn't remember your own husband being the one who did this. (laughs) If I do recall... (laughs) I think this is the way it went down. I can't remember the goblin getting sealed up in the well, and they didn't put, like, a warning sign. The, the, the yeah. very fucking bizarre thing about it is that Larry, the ponytailed guy, they, he says that when they first moved in, they removed the pieces of wood from the well. But that's never shown yeah. in the film. No. That's like no, the most said, important he, no, no, thing. He, he, said, he said he did it a week ago. Right, a week ago, right. So he, but he was responsible for opening up this thing and letting the goblin out. But that, we never see it. No. But that's like incredibly important. That's like the most important thing. Yeah. What's wrong with you, Larry? <laughs> Larry, you pile of shit. Well, Larry does take try to take responsibility for it because Dorothy says, because apparently she's got some sort of internal knowledge of how this goblin's mind works, that, that they are now considered the prey and he wants to play with them. This is like a game to the goblin. He doesn't give a shit about being sealed up in a well. This is just part of the game and now they're his targets. Yep. <laughs> uh, we... <laughs> So at this point, they're all kind of arguing about who's going to go and find it. Exactly. Um, In fact, there's a, there's a little bit of a, of a male versus female, uh, whether the guys should do it, whether the women should accompany them, that sort of thing. And we find out that one of the women is pregnant. She keeps talking about her child. I wasn't sure if she was talking about her child within her or whether they might have had no, a I child think, at I, home. No, no, I think they were, I think, no, because she said, she said, who's going to help you raise this baby, raise this oh, right. child when it comes? So it seems to me like they were definitely talking about her being pregnant. Um, Though she's Dor- definitely not visibly pregnant in any way. Right, exactly. And Dorothy says that there are some tools in the shed. So the two guys who are left go over to find those tools. The weird thing is that she ends up giving one of them the the poker the, the that was used in the murder scene earlier. <laughs> I, it's just a very common <laughs> <No>. implement. <laughs> All the houses have these. And then uh, Larry is able to... I can't remember if it was Larry. One of the guys, they're, they're able to get their uh, badass line. Well, their names are Larry and Jerry. So, I mean, it's like... It doesn't really help. But, yeah. Uh, yeah. One of them looks right into the camera and says... All right. We're going to go to that tool shed. Uh, we're going to get some tools. And we're going to fix that goblin station. Like, you can actually hear the moment when he looks directly into the camera. <laughs> yeah, you really can. <laughs> it's like and he gets louder. Fi- we're going to fix that goblin's engine. <laughs> Which, by the way, doesn't work as a line. It no. doesn't really. Let me, let me explain something to you about the goblin. He doesn't have an engine. Even as a euphemism for, I'm, we're going to fuck him up, it would be better just to say, I'm, we're just going to get some tools and fuck him up. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which they aren't going to do, by the way. No. They run outside, they start looking for weapons, and this is the dumbest thing in the world happens. <laughs> Dorothy lets them outside. Yeah. And they... <laughs> 
<laughs> she lets him outside, and they run off to the shed to get some some weapons. Yeah. And immediately, someone knocks knock on, on the, the door. door. <laughs> and Dorothy's like, "Who is it?" And, and you, hear, you hear this really gruff, obvious goblin voice. I forgot my knife. <laughs> also, they didn't have a knife anyway, but that's besides the point. So she opens the fucking door. <sighs> and I thought she was dead. I thought, I thought like, oh, that's the end of it. She's dead. You know, but no. I mean, like, they... This is it's so fucking weird. It's because really we weird. see we see, we see uh, Jerry and uh, the other guy go to the shed and grab some weapons. The shed, by the way... Uh, appears to be an edge of the haunted house which Nightmare Asylum takes place in because you can see a uh, gravestone in the back for some reason. (laughs) But whatever. So they grab a few weapons and they hear a scream and they run back to the house. Yeah. It's hard to get a sense, by the way, of how far away this shed is supposed to be, but it doesn't really matter because when they run back to the house, Dorothy is with them. Yeah, Dorothy's with them. We don't know how she got away from... The goblin. We don't know how. Like apparently, she got pulled outside. She. We never see the fight or the struggle. He doesn't. He's. She's the first person he hasn't been able to kill easily. Yeah. But she's just with them now. But here's here's the most baffling part is that she gets pulled out by the goblin. Okay. So so in the in the seconds it takes from the scream That's right. to them showing up, she manages to fight off the, the, the zombie, listen to me, the goblin, <laughs> and get far enough away that there's enough time for what happens next to happen. And that's, and, and let me go into this. So what happens next is, is our friends who we're assuming are named Larry and Jerry uh, get back to the door, um, you know, with... Uh, with Dorothy, and now they're banging on the door saying, let us in, you know, it's, we're here, it's us, let us in, you know, uh, the fucking goblin's coming, you know, and, uh, and, and they're not going to do it, they're like, we don't know it's you, you know, we don't know who, if this is the right person or not, and then they have enough time to realize that there's a key underneath the mat, and let themselves in. All the while, all the while, they keep cutting. It's almost like that scene in Monty Python. And That's Holy right, Grail, where they keep cutting back to him running. They keep cutting back to him running. And it just seems like there's just this infinite amount of space between them. It's, I mean, it was really just one of those baffling, weird shots that made no sense whatsoever, but was kind of awesome. It was kind of, it's mostly awesome because of how the goblin is running after them. <laughs> he's, he's like running around like, like a hunchback with his yeah. arms flailing, and every few steps he takes a flying roll forward. Yeah, that was pretty awesome. I mean... Uh, I mean, I guess it, it kind of plays into the idea that he's a trickster and he's kind of joking around and he's not treating them seriously. Yeah. So he's running like uh, like some sort of weird animal as yeah. opposed to a goblin. So they so they get inside and Dorothy mentions something about something, but Dorothy's voice is right yeah. at the is right at the perfect pitch where the background noise and her voice kind of like mesh together and I can never understand a damn word she says I mean it doesn't matter we can sort of imply what's happening they all ran upstairs and this is by the way after they run upstairs she says something about this door leads to the basement Yeah, and they open up a door and they're they're in the basement now they're in a basement and in the basement there actually is some decent weapons which begs the question why the fuck didn't they go down to the basement as opposed to going outside to the shed right. to get weapons right exactly 
I have to take a moment, by the way, Mo. I was just looking at the IMDb page for Goblin, and the characters in this film are called Jerry, Larry, Tammy, Sherry, Jody. I mean, how the fuck are we not supposed to get them all mixed up? Yeah. <laughs> um, so they ended up, yes, they're in the basement. They're getting weapons. And then we get to find out that uh, the, the, the other end of the 911 call, th- these are going to be characters now. <laughs> Because it cuts to the police office or the police station, I suppose, and uh, this part is really just terribly edited. It's hard to tell what's going on. Like most of the dialogue gets repeated, and uh, and a police officer. We know he's a police officer because he has a big Amish cap on. <laughs> Doesn't necessarily look like a policeman. Yeah. Uh, he's told that uh, that they, they got a call, a strange call. Did you say he has an Amish cap on? Yeah, he's got like a big circular. Like it doesn't look like a like a sheriff's hat or no, anything. No, he's got like a that. cowboy hat on. It's not a cowboy it's hat. It's totally a cowboy hat. He's got it on backwards, but it's a cowboy hat. You can put a cowboy hat on backwards? Yeah, people do that for some reason. Okay. I don't know. I, I See, you're an American. I don't know. Unless I was from Alberta, I wouldn't know these things. That's Canadian. <laughs> but apparently there's something going down at the old Romero house. Mm. Uh, and uh, and the cop suddenly says, that's where the murders happened. So he decides he's <laughs> he going like, to go out there. It. Yeah, he's going to go check it out. I mean... You think he'd check it out anyway, since there doesn't seem to be anything else going on, <laughs> right? Yeah. They did get a nine one one call. Um, so now it's just a series of these people running from house to house, and this is where now the they're rest- going back to the first house to find the book. Right, that's exactly right, and they yeah. start sealing up the doors in the most. <laughs> oh, this half- is, and this is another moment where we get a cut. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But this is. I mean, this now it's turning into like a zombie movie, right? They need to to make sure that all the entrances are sealed, but they do it by piling up a few chairs against the door, and that's yeah, it. That's it. And also, the goblin, except for knocking on the door that time, hasn't really shown any need to come in through the door or window anyway. You know, it's it like like watching the goblin hunt these guys is almost like playing playing. Uh, I bet I can catch you with a little kid. That's right. You know, You're, like, he's intentionally staying away. Yeah, like you don't you don't have to you don't. I mean, like everybody knows when you're playing when you're playing catch with a little kid, you don't have to chase after them. You right. sit perfectly still. They'll come to you. Yeah, <laughs> and that's exactly what's happening with the with the goblin. Now, this would be the part of the filming where Todd Sheets must have figured that his film is running a little short. <laughs> Perhaps by a significant amount, because yeah. from here on in, things are about to get fucking crazy. Really weird. First, we get Todd Sheets. In what can only be described as a decision in clothing based in the early 90s. Well, I'm, I bet it was filmed during summer because everyone's wearing shorts, and I mean, it looks like it must be you know desperately warm. Yes, but, Ta- but Todd Sheets is wearing a leather jacket. But he's also wearing a leather jacket. It's Todd Sheets. He wears a leather jacket in his movies, and I get that. But I mean, I mean, but, but I mean, put some pants on, man. <laughs> <laughs> He's wearing shorts. Okay, l- let's let's explain what's. How happening How long is here. this scene? You think? Uh, I think it's uh, actually about seven minutes. Yeah, that makes sense. It's extremely lengthy, and the scene involves Todd Sheets. His character is unnamed and has never been introduced up to this point. It is just him walking down a street and. Well, really walking around a house. Walking around a house. Well, yeah. at first he's walking by houses, and then he yeah, goes yeah. closer to a specific house. And he goes every, like, you know, 30 seconds or so, he'll go, hello? Or he goes, damn neighborhood going to hell. Yeah, right. and, and he's pointing. Like grumble to himself. He has a flashlight, and he's pointing it at things. And this goes on for a while. 
I think my favorite moment is when is when he he kind of walks around to the side of a house a little bit and uh, and almost walks into a bush or it looks like he almost <laughs> walks into a bush and kind of does like one of those like jump backs, you know. <laughs> Hello. This even in the realm of padding in a film, this is something else because this is a completely disconnected scene yeah. that that has no other bearing on the rest of the film. So he eventually walks into a house. He goes up a flight of stairs, I think, and then he's grabbed by the goblin. Yep. And the goblin now has a pair of pruning shears, which he uses to stab Todd Sheets. Yeah, this is the other scene in the film where I, where it it gets to the point where it's. It's almost a little nauseating. There's just so much meat. Yeah, because there's, yeah. there's actually we see like meat being like scissored. Yeah, like, like cut. Like them trying to cut meat with uh with dull scissors, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's it actually kind of effective in terms of being disgusting. You know what it kinda looks like? It looks like rubber manicotti. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, it, it it's got it's almost got a skin like texture. It's yeah. something else. But then they <laughs> they pair that effect. With with the effect of these shears being shoved down the throat. It's a really Tachi. cool forced perspective, though. Oh, it, it would be if it was just for a second, like, like shove it in, Yeah, it's, right? enti- it's entirely too, too, yeah, exactly. Because it's going so slow, you can tell that the, the shears are next to his face, and you can see them kind of move out sure, of the lip sure. line a little bit. Uh, yeah, you're right. If it, if it had just been one quick stab, it would have been perfect. But, but it's still, I mean, again, this, you know, this murder is... Fine, because the people who are watching this want to see people get killed. But in terms of the structure of the film, it just like the entire plot just had to stop for like eight minutes while this all happened, mm-hmm. and then we just go back to the house again. Well, I think maybe you know, I mean, I, I, you can still defend this scene, uh, you know, by saying th- this is just proving that that the goblin, even if it can't get to these particular people, is still killing. Yeah, that he's actually affecting more than the people in that house, yeah. which is good to know. I mean, the suggestion is that I guess the whole neighborhood is being terrorized. Yeah. Um, so the cop does arrive at the house where all these kids or young people are are, are hiding out. He's, and he's driving s- a a very cop car, <laughs> because because when I think of cop cars, I think Subaru. Yeah, he's driving a Subaru. There's no indication at all that he's a police officer, None. except that he has a beard. Um, he has not <laughs> called for backup in any way, or even really told anyone else except for that one dispatcher uh, slash nine one one person that he is going to this house. That dispatcher—that's so, the same woman from uh, from Nightmare Asylum, right? From Nightmare Asylum, she's also in uh, Prehistoric Bimbos in Armageddon City. She has yep. a big part in that. She's in a lot of those Tachi's films. Um, so he—he uh, he, of course he walks up to the house and he's grabbed from behind and killed immediately. Murdered. He is murdered, um, and he he uses that uh, that scythe again and stabs him in the uh, mouth with it. Yeah, not the vagina this time. Yeah, the face mouth. So Jerry and Larry and the rest, they and, know and that Jerry and yeah, <laughs> it's like the Tammy. Gilligan's Island theme. Yeah. Um, they know that they have to come up with a plan themselves. Oh, and they what a plan! Can. They have a great plan that is nearly inaudible, and even when you know what they say, makes as the least possible amount of sense. Okay, I'll go get the writing water in order. Yeah. You know how we plan it? Yeah. Get the ladder put up to the hole, aim for the goblin's face. This better work. And if it doesn't work, then we'll all stake Tartar for a hundred goblin. I gotta tell you, even listening back to that, and that I just watched this movie today, I still have no idea what they're saying. 
I know that he says he has to go out and get the riding lawnmower. Yeah, that's that's pl- that's part one of the plan is to get the riding lawnmower. I don't know what the second part of the plan is. Yeah, but the thir- I... but the third part is they have to win because if not, then they'll be steak tartare for a goblin. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Uh... <laughs> Meanwhile, Dorothy's sitting off to the side reading the book again, or reading right. the, the book. And the the girl who is not the wife, <laughs> I don't know what her name is. She has started to freak out, I guess, suddenly for no good reason. Well, at this and point, it, I'm just calling her Prager. Prager, the Prager girl. She starts unstacking the blockade from the door, which are just a few chairs. Yeah. And the wife stops her. She goes, what are you doing? And she actually quite sensibly replies, uh, the sheriff's car out there must have some sort of radio. I'm going to go out and try to use it to contact somebody. That's actually the best plan in the entire movie. That's a much better plan than trying to find a riding lawnmower. Yeah. <laughs> and That doesn't work. <laughs> and That's right. If we later find out, it doesn't actually fucking yeah, cause work. The, the next, because it builds up to this amazing, amazing scene of of them running out to get the riding lawnmower. There's like no keys or it doesn't work or something. So instead they grab a rototiller. Yeah, they do. You They're know? going to use this, which by the way, every weapon that they had up to that point was a better weapon to combat this creature than, than that. A, than a fucking rototiller. I mean, let's say I want to take its knees out. You know, now don't get me wrong. I've used rototillers before and they are dangerous as fuck. However, they are not uh, effective combat weapons. But the best part about this is that they, so so they get the rototiller and they start kind of doing like a head on thing with the, uh, with the, with the goblin and they run headlong into the goblin with it. It doesn't affect the goblin at all. So the, of course it doesn't. Cause what yeah, could it even do? Exactly. Cause it's not on. Yeah. I mean, if it was on, those blades would have been spinning. It would have been interesting, but obviously that's very different. We got we got to stop for a second because I guess the indication was that who, people who maybe were watching this before the movie was released didn't know what the hell was going on, just like we didn't. Mm. So there is a voiceover from, some, from someone who is, I guess, supposed to be Jerry, uh, and he explains just quickly what is going on in the movie. Yeah. And you got to play it because it's obviously... <laughs> Really, really obviously, not any of the characters' voices that we've heard up to this point, unless you count Tachi's appearance from earlier. <laughs> you know, Larry's gone out after this stuff himself. He's gone out after his lawnmower. We just need to quit fighting and stay here where you belong. Stay in the house. I mean, who knows if he's okay or not? <laughs> this happens a few more times before the end of the movie, where there's some... <laughs> There's some important piece of exposition that Tachis has just dubbed his own voice over as if he's one of the characters in the house. Like, he's the unseen guy that we haven't seen up to this point yeah. who's just been sitting in the corner, and he's just going to explain what happened. I mean, yeah. I can only imagine the difficulties that occurred making this movie. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to really... <laughs> we're just a few minutes away from seeing how off the rails yeah, things get. Exactly. So, so, but getting back to the, my, my, what was happening, you know, that happens right after this. They attack him right. with, the, with the tiller. And and obviously fails immediately. And the best part is, is then the goblin takes the tiller from them and <laughs> chasing chases out. them. I mean, it's such a scene straight out of a, a Scooby Doo episode. You know, like I, like you almost expect him to pull the mask off of the goblin and be like, you know, I would have got you to if it wasn't for these meddling kids. You they know? could have done that too because now that we see the goblin in a bit clearer, we can. We can, I mean, it's very obvious that it's it's Derek Bernier. <laughs> they could have just pulled it off and showed that it was their friend the entire time, fucking with. That, that would have been a brilliant ending for the film, <laughs> without a doubt. No. Uh, so, 
Remember when we said just a moment ago that Preggers was going to run out and use the radio in the car? Yes. Well, <laughs> for some reason, someone does go out to the car yeah, and does use the radio. Yeah, it's Tammy. It's Tammy. And it's, the best it, part is that she's, you can hear her scream, fuck this, as she runs out the door. <laughs> so I guess the Preggers just decided not to come outside. I guess. I love it. She gets to the car, and the car doesn't have a CB radio, but what it does have is a phone. A phone. A car phone. It's awesome. In fact, she's she's very adamant that someone should come and help her when she calls the sheriff's office. Get your fucking ass out of here now! I'm gonna die! <laughs> and the, I want to keep that audio clip forever, man. That's great. Get your fucking ass out of here now! I'm gonna die! <laughs> I'm gonna die! That's gonna be like my, my voicemail uh, outgoing message. Get your fucking ass out of here now! I'm gonna die! <laughs> I, like you were saying earlier about how the the nine one one receptionist she, she keeps telling her to stop using profanity. Yeah, she's like she's like, ma'am, <laughs> there's no need for that kind of language. <laughs> she doesn't care that she's calling from a dead cop's yeah, car, yeah, yeah, or that she's going to die. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so, so Tammy, by the way, is now suddenly attacked in well the car is attacked while she's inside yeah. by the goblin who basically just kind of goes boogie 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 <laughs> outside the windows <laughs> just like that except like with that. more Derek Bernier arm movements um, <laughs> but remember when you said just a minute ago Mo that Dorothy was reading yes well Dorothy has an idea ding Woo-hoo. she has figured out from reading the book that if you expose, she's telling this to the guys now, if you can expose the goblin's heart and put a necklace in there, it can kill it. That's the rules. It makes sense. Well, in the context of this movie, it's as sensible as anything else. Exactly. But, uh, and this is very inspiring to Larry. In fact, he decides it's time to do something. <sighs> okay. All right. You go to the utility closet. Get anything you can find. I'll get that necklace. It's time to kick some butt. <laughs> it's time, it's to, time kick some to kick some butt. butt. By the way, remember a moment ago where she said the where Tammy said, "Get your fucking ass over here now." Yeah. Well, this guy just said, "It's time to kick some butt." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Larry does kick some butt. He grabs the most useful possible weapon for cutting into someone's chest and exposing their heart. A circular a, saw. A circular saw, which is plugged in, <laughs> which is plugged in. So when he Brings it out, it makes for a very great visual. I was like, yeah, circular saw. And he even gets his his hero moment and his hero quote. Yeah, looking into the camera again. Yep. Eat saw, bitch. Now, there the saw go. was kind of loud there, so you probably didn't hear him say, eat saw, bitch. Yeah, he said, eat saw, bitch. Yeah. But what's great about this is He'll say is bitch, that- but he won't say ass. In that scene, yes, that saw was on. Well, of course it's plugged in, so when he runs over to the creature, do not expect that saw to move at all while it's cutting into the creature's chest. But it only, I mean, this is edited well, because it just kind of cuts really quickly to him (laughs) just throwing it into the creature's chest. Yeah, There's uh, there's obviously no blade on it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But that's okay. Safety practices. He cuts that fucker's chest right open. Right open. And uh, and for some reason, as he's doing that, um, the creature does not really resist at all. Yeah, but he saws it open. He shoves the necklace right in there. 
he, I'll tell you, very proactive of Larry to have discovered this information that all he needed to do was cut open its chest and, and throw this uh, thing inside it. And he immediately, just like two seconds later, gets something and does exactly that. He is quite the man. He's a manly man. And that, uh, that, that ponytail has aged well. <laughs> now, this is very interesting. <laughs> Let me tell you how interesting this next portion of the film is. Okay, so they've killed the creature. Its face starts to get all melty. And, it's done, and the, yeah. It's done. The goblin is dead. Ho, ho. And they celebrate. And, in fact, it, it really does look like the film is about to end because... Yeah, because uh, now they're, like, debating about whether or not they should be moving or... They're all know. taking the whole thing very lightly. Larry says that he, he wants to get his money back for the house, but Tammy thinks that they should stay. Uh, Jerry thinks that uh, that this whole thing's going to work out after they go to the police station and explain about the dead police officer and all the, the neighbors who are dead yeah. and their friends who are dead. <laughs> and Dorothy, she really explains it in a way that we can all understand. This movie won't change things. You might as well stay. Besides the goblin's dead, and you always have to live with the memories in your mind. <laughs> live with the memories in your mind. <laughs> so that should be the final moment of the film. That should be where the credits start rolling. Right there. That's where the credits would start rolling yeah. in a normal film. This isn't normal. No. Th- things are about to get so fucking weird. There's still 15 minutes left of the movie. <laughs> so well, 10 minutes of footage and Ten, five minutes yeah, of credits. Still. Um. We cut to the basement, or a basement, Something. and a zombie, yes, a zombie starts to get up and walk. Uh, it does look like Matthew Lewis, but it shouldn't be, because he was killed outside, uh, and this uh, this character is dressed differently, so it's just a zombie. Oh, I assumed it was Matt Lewis. It looked just like him. Yeah, well, it was him. <laughs> oh, okay, I see. So, so it, was Matt, it was Matt Lewis as a zombie, but not playing... I don't think he's playing the same character. Well, all this footage, it's we see Larry talking on the phone. Larry, I think it's Larry because Larry is no longer wearing his ponytail. Now his hair is. I, I gotta, I gotta tell you, man. When he had his hair like unfettered, you know, like I thought it was a different person. Like I, yeah. didn't, I didn't realize that was still him again. Well, let me explain something to you, Mo. This is almost certainly footage from a different movie oh. that has been edited in Godfrey Ho style. I don't know if it's from a different movie, but it's definitely shot at a different time. Yes, it absolutely is. And with not all of the actors available. So Larry is on the phone, and he's talking about how the problem has gotten worse. And he says something about uh, an antidote to... I mean, at this point, I didn't know what the fuck was going on. Yeah, it, it gets really confusing really quick. Remember when I said earlier about how Tachitz had done that voiceover trying to explain things? Yeah. Well, this has another great moment where just suddenly out of nowhere a voice appears that says, it says here in this book that anyone killed by the goblin will come back as like a zombie. <laughs> yeah, which makes you wonder, why didn't the original owner become a zombie? Why didn't any of the people killed up to this point become a zombie? Exactly. <laughs> so now zombies are wandering around. Most of the characters have vanished entirely. Uh, Larry is on the phone talking about an antidote for some reason. Yeah, yeah. Basically, at this point right now, the only like the like uh, uh, Larry and Preggers are the only two people who there's any new footage of. Right. Um, there's some spliced in old footage of uh, Jerry, um, like sitting on a couch talking about being worried about something, but it's clearly 
yeah. doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on here. I mean, it's almost kind of clever the way he threw everything together, but the, <laughs> but I mean, and it almost, and it almost makes sense why, why Larry looks different because remember Larry at the end of the movie said he was like going to go take a shower or something, you know? <laughs> so like, so like you can, so it's okay to understand why he might have a different shirt on, um, you know, and, uh, and Preggers, Basically has the same outfit on she has on before, but clearly right. looks months older than. You know. And then there's a voiceover. You got to play the voiceover because I got to hear it. Um, it's number eighteen. Yeah, yeah. Who's James? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Who is James? Who's James? That was Preggers, right? Yelling that was out? Preggers. Yep. Okay. So she goes, James. The zombies. They're getting into the house. And then it just shows zombies running in and tearing people apart. This oh, but, oh, wait, wait! But before, but before they get in, he goes, "It's okay, I have a gun." And well, he doesn't say that. That's Todd Sheets' voice. Well, again. yeah, yeah, but, 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 but that's what I'm saying. Like, it's like, "Oh, it's okay, I've got a gun," and you hear a clunk, clunk, and, and one of the zombies gets his head blown off. But then the house gets bum rushed by zombies, you know, and and people are getting torn apart, you know. And then it just ends. And that's the end. The, that's end. the end of the movie. No, no, the last, no, the last thing you see is the neighbor waking up as a zombie. <laughs> right, that neighbor, the neighbor guy who went out to the, yeah, yeah. To the um, store. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Uh, this guy. Honey, I'm home. That guy. <laughs> And then it just ends. The just characters ends. don't get any final moments. It was like, it was it was like the movie ended, and then they did like a ten minute sequel <laughs> that was incredibly nihilistic and just killed everybody immediately. Uh, yeah, exactly. What I really wanted to make was a zombie movie. So fuck all this goblin <laughs> shit. I mean, it's so cra- it's even crazier than the zombie rampage ending, which also didn't make any sense. But this one, but at least the zombie rampage, like like knowing the history of that movie, the ending that they made kind of makes sense. You know, yeah. like like based on like knowing the shit that they were going through, this one just makes no fucking sense at all. Which is why it's interesting. By yeah, the which way. is why it's awesome. I, it just left me with questions. It's like I don't know how this 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 was pieced together somehow and. It it just leads me with more. It leaves me with more questions than answers. Yep, it's so great. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, uh, yes, we. I have a theory, by the way, that the reason that you never see the goblin in most of the murder scenes is that they were going to try to make the whole thing a zombie movie, and then I don't know. Maybe there were pieces like like the Todd Sheets murder scene could have easily just been a zombie scene. Sure, right. Um, and and most of the murder scenes, you don't actually see the goblin except for his arm, so it could easily have been a zombie doing it. I don't know. Maybe it, there's some sort of internal continuity or or logic that I don't get. Um, now that Todd Cheese is a friend of ours, maybe we should ask him at some point. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe not. I don't think he has particularly good feelings about the making of Goblin, which, despite the fact that it doesn't make any sense, is awfully entertaining. I enjoyed the hell out of it. Oh, I had a really good time, mostly because I expected it to be from this era. So I went in with the knowledge of yeah. what these kind of movies are like. But, you know, it's it's very amateurish, but it certainly has a lot of very original, odd ideas. 
Well, gen- generally when I watch, whenever I watch a movie for the show, it always takes me a really long time to get through the movie. And generally, it's because I'm not necessarily having a good time. Uh, in this particular case today, it took me kind of a while to get through the movie because I was sick. I'm still sick, and it sucks. But uh, but once I started, once I really got into the movie, and the movie really started going, like, I I didn't take I didn't take any breaks. I didn't really slow down in watching the movie, and I was actually done with the movie an hour and a half before before we uh, started recording, which nice. almost, which almost never happens, <laughs> ever. Mo's a last minute kind of guy. I really am. <laughs> Sometimes you'll be watching the film f- ten minutes after we're supposed to be recording. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, much to Jill's chagrin. <laughs> As with most Taji's films, this one has extensive closing credits, <laughs> yeah. which actually uh, gives credits to uh, Tanya, who is one of the actresses uh, in the film, the one that gets uh, changed at some point in the movie. Gives a credit to her feet and eyes and her enormous talent at work. <laughs> that was her uh, her breasts for uh, just a moment, <laughs> which we don't actually get to see, but we get to see them through a shirt. So, bully we, to us. We have we have an idea. We have an idea what's going on, but there's some interesting credits here. Uh, I didn't actually realize that the opening that um, that J.R. Bookwalter, uh, Robot Ninja's own J.R. Bookwalter, uh, was an executive producer on this film. Uh, there's a, a a special thanks to Batman. <laughs> I didn't notice that. That's funny. And Dario Argento, and uh, David Dakota, and of course, as per usual in the Todd Sheets oeuvre of this time period, uh, Jesus gets a big shout out at the very end. Why wouldn't he? That's right. And a title card for Get High on Horror, Say No to Drugs. You have to understand, man, 1993, <laughs> that made a lot of sense to, to end a movie with, with Say No to Drugs. Actually, you know what? It probably didn't even in 1993. <laughs> I was going to say, it certainly doesn't in 2013. <laughs> <laughs> it made for a very popular screenshot I put on my own <laughs> Facebook. <laughs> Uh, yeah, now as I heard, as I heard from multiple people, can't we do both? <laughs> that's, well, that's what I was about to say. Let's let's get high on pot and watch horror. <laughs> uh, so that was it. That was Todd Sheets Goblin, a film that he isn't very happy about. And yeah. he uh, and as he mentions briefly in the interview, not to give anything away, uh, he sometimes gets a little bit uh, distressed at the idea that people judge his work now with the work of twenty years ago. Yeah. Uh, and we have to remember that the, this is a representation of a, of a man trying to make films at a time when making a film like this was incredibly difficult. And considering that, this is extremely watchable. Believe me, I've seen things that are much worse, some of them from Todd Sheets himself. Yeah, the only, the only person who it's okay to, uh, to judge now based on their, based on their previous work is uh, George Lucas. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> Zing. Fuck you, the man, Lucas. The man's retired, Mo. Leave him alone. <laughs> yeah, no no hard feelings, Lucas. No hard feelings. Tachi's Goblin is uh, very representative of his work at this time period. You go into it with the uh, expectation that you're going to see a lot of amateurish acting and effects, but if you uh, want to see a lot of gore, and if you want to see a lot of very strange things that you don't normally see put on film, then you will get your money's worth. The, as long as the money is not too much. <laughs> the tagline for the film is, You won't believe your eyes until he rips them from their sockets. Nice. Yeah, which is a great tagline. Uh, and also could, uh, could apply to the work of Tachis at this time period. <laughs> Again, we're just joking around. This I love. I love all this early stuff. I mean, it's you know, it's it's done a lot to shape the way I look at cinema. 
um, and you know, and given me the uh, you know the the thought that I could actually go out and make something. You know, like I said, this is punk filmmaking. It's this is- it's absolutely it's very it's very. Uh, it's a very punk rock uh, idea of filmmaking. I mean, I could even you could even go so far as to say this is this is a fairly metal. You know, yeah. When, well, when, <laughs> when it's touchy, it's it is metal. Yeah. I mean, th- th- this is this is these are people who are going to do it, and we're not going to let anything get in the way. Which is awesome. And, and w- because you can sometimes see where the, you know a band aid here or Whatever. you know the strings are visible here, that's one thing. But that just kind of adds to the experience. These are people piecing a film together with what they had available and it's inspiring and obviously it has inspired a lot of the people that we've talked to so i, I don't uh, mind seeing a paper uh, uh, a safety pin every now and again no neither do i especially when it's in your nose right punker shut the fuck up <laughs> <laughs> and with all of that said i think maybe we should throw to our extremely <laughs> it's amazing how long we've been building to this moment uh, our, 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 I even don't know what to say, Mo. Uh, since the very beginning of No Budget Nightmares, we've been talking about how much we wanted to have a chance to talk to Todd Sheets, yeah. get an idea of where his head uh, space was at. We know that he's had health problems in recent years. Uh, he had and a quadruple we're bypass. It was super happy that he's you know that he's be- getting better. Not only ha- has he recovered from that. Not only is he making another film, as you will be able to hear in this interview, he has tons of ideas. He seems as creatively inspired as I've ever, you know, as probably he's been since in the heyday of him making films. Yeah. So uh, it looks like we're going to be seeing a lot more from Todd Sheets in the future. And uh, believe me, when it's time to see House of Forbidden Secrets, uh, Mo and I will be there, and we are definitely going to bring it up here on No Budget Nightmares because... Yeah, that it's my most anticipated film of 2013, House of Forbidden Secrets coming soon. Why don't you have a little listen to Mo Porn and Doug Tilly talking to Todd Sheets? And joining us now, we've got uh, I don't. We'd say, oh, I guess in our community, we would describe him as the Pope of no budget uh, <laughs> filmmaking. Uh, the one and only Mr. Todd Sheets. Welcome, sir. Hey, how's it going? It's going extremely well. Sorry, I'm going to step all over you. you I son of a bitch. <laughs> I thought your introduction was going to be a little bit more detailed than that. Nope. <laughs> Uh, we are, of course, very pleased to have Todd Sheets on uh, No Budget Nightmares. Uh, like you said, the Pope, not only of No Budget Filmmaking, but certainly of uh, uh, certainly my experience with No Budget. And I hope you don't take that as a- offensive, Todd. Uh, I know that you've been influential to, frankly, you know, I interview a lot of low-budget filmmakers, and you, your influence, has, it's, it's massive. I hear people talk about you all the time. Wow, Okay. No, it's true. No, absolutely. And I mean, you know, you have the, your fan page on Facebook. Uh, f- we've covered several of your films on the show, and it's your name that gets brought up again and again because people think of you as inspirational. You were doing it at a time when it was not only difficult to do, you were making genre films and pumping them out at a, at a, at a rate of, I mean, certainly even more than people put them out now with a lot more resources, uh, and, and getting them out there and getting the word out. Uh, so I have to say, it's, it's a real pleasure. I'd even say an honor to have you uh, No Budget Nightmares. Wow, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. And, on a, and on a personal note, too, as well, I'd, I have to say that um, 
that in, in 1998, I was given a gift. And that gift was Todd Sheets' Zombie Rampage on v- on VHS, and uh, and it wasn't too long after that 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 me and my buddy started filming horrible little skits, uh, in our you know in our back proverb you know in our respective backyards and uh, you know so yeah so you definitely have have had a, a major influence uh, on me as well although you'd never know it watching my my material. <laughs> Well, okay, all right. Sounds good. <laughs> anyway, Todd, I, we're just going to go over your career in sort of uh, broad strokes. We really do appreciate you taking the time to talk to us. We know that you're uh, busy making your return film, which I know I'm, we're going to get a chance to talk about. I'm very excited about it. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what it was like making films in sort of the early days of shot on video, shot on VHS, uh, low budget, getting people together? What was the process like when you were, say, making Zombie Rampage, which is one of the favorites of, of us, uh, in terms of, of the planning it out and actually getting people together to, to make these films? Uh, Zombie Rampage was a nightmare <laughs> from beginning to end. It, it, it almost caused me to never make another movie, and here's why. I've been making a bunch of short films with my friends. And, uh, you know, I'd take my dad's Super 8 camera out and shoot on Super 8 film and do the best we could, you know, and just as kids, just having a good time because we wanted to kind of make these backyard epics, these Frankenstein movies or whatnot. And uh, I decided, you know, what am I doing? I should make a feature movie. We're going to make a monster movie. We're going to make a zombie movie. No one was making zombie movies at the time. Uh, the Italians had made some. They kind of stopped making them. Romero certainly wasn't making any. No one was making zombie movies. I was like, man, let's do it. We missed them. We wanted to make them. So we uh, decided to try to start putting it together, and I started writing a script. Now, at the time, I had to go to Kinko's and give them $4 an hour to use their computer systems to write the script. <laughs> so that was a pain in the butt, and I got done. At the time, you know, having your own computer was pretty difficult to do, mm. and it was very expensive. So we just kind of had to do it that way. Um, kind of went, decided, well, hell, man, this is too expensive. So the first few bits of the script were done that way, and then we said to hell with it and start. We went and found a typewriter, and bought it. Uh, my friends and I pulled together, bought this typewriter, and I started writing on there. The original title was Blood of the Undead, and uh, <laughs> so we went ahead and put the whole thing together. And uh, started thinking, how can I do this on a bigger scale? So I started putting the word out and trying to get, you know, some support locally where it didn't work too well. Everyone here told me, you can't make movies in Kansas City. They told me that, they either told me that or they told they thought I was making a porno movie, which I said, you know, they don't even <laughs> make porno movies here. Why would they make porno movies here? They could do it in L.A. where chicks are cheap. So uh, it's one of those kind of things. We, we were going through a lot of hassle. Well, we finally got something put together and I started calling around around trying to get my foot in the door to get help and uh lo and behold this guy steps up and says hey i can produce this with you uh he goes uh he, he had a local business here with r&b and all kinds of things and he's like you know i can help you out i said all right he says i got an investor named lonzo bowles and i said all right <laughs> went over to meet lonzo bowles and my god lonzo bowles was an eccentric kind of guy he owned a bunch of bars he was really into r&b he kind of put money into like these bands that kind of wanted to be the Temptations and crap around Kansas City. And he said, well, I'm going to help you out. We can do this. I said, well, it's going to be, this is what I need. This is my committed budget. No problem. We can do it. Well, I go out and I start getting equipment. 
and uh, renting it, and I paid you know up front for a little, bit, and then I put it on a tab because at the time they would let people do that. And I'm running a pretty good tab. Well, they introduced this guy named James, who's a who was a cameraman for a local TV station here. James was kind of looking to branch out, and he said, "Look, man," he goes, "I I work for Channel 62, and I can use all this equipment, beta cam stuff for free, professional gear stuff." He goes, "I'll tell you what, if you pay me." Six hundred dollars. I'll come out and do the whole movie for you. I said, "All right." We start shooting about three weeks into the shoot. Um, we're shooting on weekends. First of all, getting the people to show up was a chore because I was using people from a local college, Avalon College, and places like that. And man, getting those people to show up was a was a pain. But when they would show up hours late, we would start. This guy then decides he's going to uh, hold a rant. The third week he calls in. I'm like, "Where's our cameraman?" Three hours go by, no cameraman. Everyone's starting to get pretty irritated. He shows up. I'm like, he goes, I'm not shooting the frame until I get $250. <laughs> I said, what? We already paid you 600 bucks to do the movie. He said, that was all you wanted. Now, imagine this is 1989, 1988. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, well, I think ch- things have changed because uh, my lady friend's upset. I said, man, I don't give a damn about your lady friend. <laughs> <laughs> so we started making this. So, so I had to call Lonzo. We had to hunt him down. He had to bring money out. Which was frustrating because I just wanted him to give me the whole budget and put it in a bank account that we could all access. So he, he wouldn't do that. He, he says, just call me when you need money. So he brings out the money. We pay it to this idiot and we start shooting. Everything's good for two weeks. Comes to the third week again. He does it again. This time, $400. I, I literally punched the guy across the side of his jaw. <laughs> um, took away his tripod. Kicked him down on the curb. Because I feel like I paid for the tripod because literally we we had to buy the tripod. So uh, I said, you're out of here. And I uh, went and rented the gear myself and finished the movie that way. Of course, along the way, it took us so long fighting all the obstacles, including a terrible winter, that uh, half the people went away for Christmas break and never came back. And uh, so we're trying to make head or tails out of the script at that point because half the cast was gone. Oh, so that's why that movie, you know, it, it, when I was done, I couldn't even find a place to edit it because Mr. Cameraman was going to help us edit to it at his TV station. And then I had to, like, find some place to edit the stuff because on a format I didn't have any way to edit. I didn't wow. have the professional Betacam SP stuff. So I was going through hell. I finally ended up volunteering for a TV station just so I could edit. <laughs> and, uh, by the time it was all done, it was like a year and a half later. Never wanted to look at another piece of footage again. <laughs> I never wanted to make another movie again, and I decided that Kansas City was a heaping shithole of unparalleled proportions and needs to fall off in the ocean. Only we're not close enough, so it just needs to be swallowed by HP Lovecraft. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the official first retirement of Todd Sheets from filmmaking. <laughs> what what made you decide that you know what, despite all that trouble, that uh, that you were going to keep doing it? This is something you're going to stick with. Well, and then the thing is, I haven't even told you all the story. If I told you everything that went wrong with that movie, it would take me like nine and a half days. But let me tell you something. I don't know. I, I must have had insanity. I must have fallen on my head. I must Something bad must have happened. And I decided I'm going to try it again. And the wow. reason why is because I met a couple of guys that, you know, loved the movie. I don't know why. And they were like, man, let's do something together. And I'm like, okay. Derek Berger kind of hung out, and he was like, Todd, you got to make another movie. Todd, you got And I, he was adamant about it. And I said, you know what? We'll try something. And so we stepped up and put together this concept of 
uh, a rubber reality movie where you can't tell what's real or not real. And it was all within someone's mind, but you wouldn't know that until the end. It was going to be called Nightmare Asylum. And uh, yeah, that seemed pretty easy considering we had a guy that would give me a location for five or six weeks and and we'd shoot weekends only, like three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And it'd be real laid back, I thought, you know, okay. Little did I know, halfway into production, they were going to sell the business to another guy. <laughs> oh, Jesus. <laughs> who didn't want us to be there. Uh, my lead actor that was going to play the heavy in the movie, the big King of Dreams guy, the Nightmare King, we don't know what happened to him. He was there, and then he was gone, and no one ever saw him again. So Jerry, Angel, and myself had to kind of split the part because we didn't have anyone else to do it. And I, I didn't even know what the hell to do because I'm not an actor, so I'm just like trying to figure out what the hell to do. And sometimes we would have to just have to ad-lib stuff because – the lines didn't fit anymore without certain people there. And my God, man, it was another nightmare of epic proportions. And I'm I, to this day, I'm not even sure why I kept going after these two debacles. <laughs> but, uh, but I did. And I, and I think the reason I did is because I genuinely love movies. I genuinely love filmmaking. I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And <laughs> I disowned those damn movies because of it. But, um, you know, I was trying to have a good time. I was trying to learn as I went along. I was trying to be creative as much as I could. I didn't understand certain things, uh, you know, general rules of filmmaking. And at the time, people don't understand, this was a long time ago. I was a kid, and uh, you the, the resources weren't readily available. You couldn't go on the Internet yeah. and look up uh, the basic you know, outline of, okay, what is a director's line? What is a line of action? Sure. What, how do you shoot these things? You, you just had to kind of do it and figure it out. I went to a film school. They, they said, Oh, Kansas city film school. Let's, I went, it wasn't a film school. It was a bunch of fools sitting around critiquing other movies. Mm -hmm. They didn't teach me a thing about filmmaking. They taught me how to be an a-hole and put down everybody else. And I didn't want a part of that. So they, they looked down. I mean, they're going, Hey, why don't we watch some Russ Meyer? And they're like, who? Wow. My God. Don't <laughs> wow. Get out of here. Gone with my ass. Cause I'm out of this place. I don't want nothing to do with it. I, you know, I want fast, faster pussycat kill, kill. And they're telling me a fifties classic is rebel without a cause, which it, it is, but it's not the same kind of movie. And I'm like, yeah. F you guys, I'm leaving. So I think I that's did. actually, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Todd, but it, that's amazing that your, your attitude at the time it really reflects in the movies you were making because it's a very DIY attitude. It's, you know, take what you have available to you. You know, don't sit around and, and spend all your days critiquing these films. Go out and make them and get better with each one as you go along. Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, there was no one here to, to be a mentor to me because no one in Kansas City was making movies. Uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't know anybody in the business yet. I was kind of just starting out. And uh, I was doing the best I could. Then I, I went to a couple of conventions. These are way back in the day when there weren't many of those either. Mm. And I actually ended up hooking up with David Dakota, who, you know, actually started teaching me some things about mm -hmm. filmmaking. But until then, I didn't know Jack. And uh, and I and I was trying, but it, like I said, there was very few books. The the few books you could find, like in a library or whatever. First of all, you couldn't buy them because they were a hundred dollars or whatever for a book on directing. And then they were more like these terrible. My God, man, it was like reading Atlas Shrugged. It was like, what is this? Like, you know, no one wants to sit there and get all that up. This, uh, you know, this, uh, talking about these crazy things. No, I mean, it's not telling me about technique. It's telling me about all this. It was like mathematics. It was insane. 
I was like, you know what? I'm not putting together a jet engine. I want to know where to set my camera. For God's sakes, make it user-friendly, you a-holes. So that's kind of why it was like uh, those early days were very uh, frustrating and also very liberating because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, so I just did whatever. <laughs> that's awesome. What are the what kind of influence did uh, David Dakota and, and J.R. Bookwalter have on some of those early films once, once you started kind of forming a relationship? Well, you know, and that's the thing. J.R. Bookwalter, you know, I love the guy. I do. He really helped me. But, man, he was one of those guys that would just punch you in the face because, you know, J.R. would call you up and go, this looks like crap. <laughs> learn, learn, learn to be a director, Todd, or turn the camera off. And I was like, wow, thanks for the advice, J.R., <laughs> Thanks. And uh, but Jr. actually was trying to help me by kind of a tough love situation. Mm -hmm. And then he would call me back and he'd say, look, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And he would kind of give me a step by step on a few of the things that I didn't understand. And he did end up helping me. He really did, because Jr. is one of those kind of guys that, you know, he knows what he's doing, but he gets frustrated if he feels like you're not paying attention. And I was still very much in my own mindset of doing my own thing. So, uh, you know, what he did teach me was invaluable because it, it started shaping me. But at the same time, there were pitfalls. I mean, you know, I was still a kid and I'm trying to learn stuff. And it was it was difficult because it just is one of them things. You know, it's a low budget film and it's a trouble. And uh, and, and there's there was there were no resources back then. I mean, that, that's the thing I have to stress to people. You couldn't even get a replacement camera if your camera broke because nobody <laughs> sold them hardly. <laughs> And if they did sell them, it was like $1,200 for a camera, you know. And this was back when, you know, I, and, I, and I, I hated, uh, I didn't shoot on VHS. Looks like I shot it on VHS, shoved up someone's anus, but I didn't. <laughs> I uh, I actually was shooting on super or, or, or uh, you know, three-quarter inch stuff. But the problem is, is that, uh, you know, you couldn't, the, the quality was crap back then. There was nothing you could do. And, and by the time you got done editing the thing, and putting it through all the generations you had to put it through, it would look like you shot it on subpar Fisher Price equipment or something. It was just <laughs> the way it worked. So that, it was ugly. You were incredibly productive during those time, that time period, though. I mean, you were making film after film after film. I mean, how did you stay motivated when you were kind of pumping these things out? Was it just the, the, the knowledge that, that you, know, you were getting better, that there was more interest coming your way while you were doing it? Or was it just the naivete of youth? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what it was. It was me hoping to God one of the shots I was doing would come out decent. <laughs> you know, because it, it's true. When you're in the middle of that stuff, I mean, so, like, like in Goblin, for instance, which I disowned, but there's parts of Goblin I look at and I go, well, you know, it was kind of creative where I was doing cool spinny camera stuff. We made these like wooden things to hook the camera to to do spinny things. And and then I was like getting down with a with the crazy bulky ass cameras. I was still getting down inside of a doorway, a door. Like I took half a door apart, got inside of it to take pictures of the mechanism of the lock as it was turning. Just weird things because I was trying to do stuff that was kind of artistic and Argento-ish on a dollar ninety-five, you know, I mean, Argento had millions of dollars, and I had, I had literally, okay, the tape cost two ninety-five. Sorry, and, uh, you know, and that's what I had. And basically, I'd go down to the hardware store and get lighting and do what I had to do because you couldn't hardly find lighting here. And I learned my lesson last time because, like, Zombie Rampage ended up costing me thirty-something thousand dollars out of my pocket. And uh, as a kid, that kind of sucked because uh, every every dime I'd ever made working or anything went into that movie because I got screwed so badly by these people. And uh, but and I didn't even tell you that the, the worst part was when Lonzo Bowles disappeared off the planet, 
And uh, after only putting in like three thousand dollars out mm -hmm. of a proposed, you know, forty thousand dollar budget, he left, and I had to pay all the rest of the stuff out of my pocket. So that's another story for another time. But that's that's also the the deal with these other movies. I told myself I'm never doing that again. So for my lighting, I'm going down and buying hardware store stuff, and I'm doing all this stuff that, you know, honestly is more. I guess I would say it's more in tune with, you know, very guerrilla. I mean, very very guerrilla. We were. We were uh, doing things that I don't even know how we did it, to be honest. And I don't even know how we got by with some of the stuff we did. We rented a house from a lady who was a, a you know real estate lady for Goblin. She's like, yeah, well, what are you guys going to do? Well, we're going to use it for just a production base for a month. <laughs> yeah, it's empty right now. You might as well. And while you're doing that, we can do our repairs, right? I said, of course. And then you can rent the house. How great for both of us. <laughs> of course, we went in there, and after we were done, they had to do more repairs. And we tried to be as careful as possible, but, man, there was blood on stuff. We just couldn't get it out. <laughs> things like that. And, and we're on top of a roof shooting a death scene with a lady getting a sickle in the JJ. <laughs> neighbors are calling the police every 43 seconds. <laughs> that was one of the problems shooting in Kansas City. Every time you pulled the giant movie lights, and this happened later years. Like I'm doing like zombie bloodbath and stuff, and I've got giant movie lights. I've got 70 extras, and people are driving by, calling the police, telling them we're breaking into a building. Mm. And I'm like, the police would show up, and they're like, yeah, we got to report you're breaking in the building. They would think it was funny, and I'm like, yeah, because we – we decided let's break in this building, but first let's gather seventy witnesses and a bunch of movie lights. <laughs> that's a real, I mean, that's the kind of mentality you're dealing with here. I'm like, you know, what is wrong with people in this place? There's something <laughs> wrong with people here. So yeah, you could tell I was frustrated. You know, this this is. I, I hope you you'll understand the spirit I'm asking this question in. You're you're back. You're making a film right now, House of Forbidden Secrets, and I know that Mo was really excited about seeing um, it. So, so um, oh incredibly, yeah. I can't wait. Do you sometimes feel like having these early films, which you know, in your own words, they have some flaws. A lot of them were really about learning experience. Do you worry that sometimes people judge your ability on these early films, which are still being watched, uh, and and maybe don't take you as seriously as you should, considering you know these movies were you know twenty years ago? I, I totally think that that happens, and and what really frustrates me as a, as an artist is, you know, we started out in a very very small humble place, and it was a terrible terrible learning curve, but. As years went on, you know, I consider my first real movie Zombie Bloodbath because I decided, okay, I'm going to basically do something here or not do it. And so I pulled all these resources together. I got a bunch of press involved. And I mean, I was even on the John Stewart show back when he was on MTV. And I'm pulling <laughs> all these, these, these resources, right? And I basically made this movie. And once again, it seemed like always something was against me and in that case it was the great flood of the midwest of 1993 wow. our locations were literally underwater to the point where like a six-story building the only part that was above water was the very top and we had to take a boat to get our equipment back and forth from one location to another and man i'm not kidding you after we were done filming we would take zombies down to the river we would sandbag the river with volunteers to help wow. We'd have it was it was a sight to behold hundreds of zombies down there sandbagging <laughs> Because people were losing their homes, you know, we were trying oh, to help man. people. It was a nightmare, and uh, but I consider that my first real movie because of that, because of the fact that we all pulled together and we did such an amazing job. Uh, parts of that movie I absolutely hate. There's parts of it where you can see kind of what's coming. And then after that, I started getting better and better with each movie, and if it wasn't better, I wouldn't even be a part of it because I wanted to do better. And then I started winning awards at you know film festivals and things for like Moon, Violent New Breed. 
Uh, even Zombie Bloodbath 2 won some awards because of its uh, its editing and its cinematography, which we shot mm-hmm. that movie on four different systems. A lot of people go, why'd you do that? Well, the truth of the matter is, you know, we had a camera breakdown and I needed to shoot that weekend. So I grabbed a Super 8 and I shot some of it on the Super 8. <laughs> mm. Then I went out and I rented a beta cam and I was, you know, I was using a million different formats. And then uh, when we were shooting dead things, hell, someone stole the camera on that. Where we, <laughs> we had extras and we, wow. we set the camera down for two minutes. I, I was prepping an effect. I turned around. Camera's gone, footage and everything. We had to reshoot that whole day, and it was a mess. And So that one looks crazy because we shot it on five different cameras, and it was big on steel time, you know, and it was it was rough. But each one got better, and the stories got better. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of frustrating that I'm judged by a movie I made when I was, you know, 16 years old or 15 years old. And uh, then you have movies that we've won awards on. No one mentions those. <laughs> no one looks at Violent Breed and goes, hold on, man. These guys made a two-and-a-half-hour epic almost. You know, it was around two hours, ten minutes on, you know, no money, basically. We had, what, seven grand, and that included blowing stuff up, catching people on fire. Rudy Ray Moore's in the movie, one of my favorite right. driving actors, Dolomite oh, yes. himself. And the thing was, Rudy cost us two grand, you know, right there. And then and, the, and then with the insurance, cost us a thousand. And then we had these guys coming in from all over the country doing makeup effects. And it was it was you know the most expensive movie I'd ever done. It was around sixty five hundred to seven thousand dollars. And you, let me tell you, you know what? It, it was an epic for that kind of money, and sure. uh, and we won awards for that. People are like, wow, this is how it should be done. I mean, one of the reviews said, looks, and if you're going to do micro budget cinema, this is where you need to look because this is what you got to beat. And we were ahead of our time. Shivers came out, and we we got good reviews and all that. Whispers in the Gloom, Moonchild, so things were going good. And then. Uh, People still wouldn't let go of that early stuff. Oh, yeah, but he's a piece of crap. Well, you know, everyone starts somewhere. Most directors hide their early stuff in a closet, mm-hmm. and they only show it to friends or family or not even that. They, they are embarrassed. They hide it. Uh, nowadays, most people don't even do first features. They do short films for 30 years or commercials, right. and then suddenly someone goes, hey, you should direct a movie, and then the movie comes out, and you're like, yeah, my eyeballs are breaking because the guy didn't even know how to shoot a movie. <laughs> it's a, a shaky nightmare. It's like... Uh, <laughs> Paraplegic Ralph took the camera and flopped all over the ground and shot something. <laughs> no offense to Paraplegic Ralph, but uh, leave the camera at home, Paraplegic. <laughs> can't have it. So my thing is, though, you know, at least you know we we started from very humble beginnings, and I shouldn't have allowed it to get distributed. But when one of your idols comes up to you and he says, "Hey, I can put this stuff out for you," and you're standing with your friends, let me tell you something. You don't go, "No, no, thanks." You go, oh my God! <laughs> <laughs> like, oh no way! The Puppet Master guy is putting out our movies, and the next thing you know, man, you got to live that down for thirty years. It's <laughs> you know, Todd, it's kind of interesting on the on the flip side of of that other question about whether it kind of haunts you a little bit to have these films out there. It seems like the time is certainly since two thousand and, and the last decade or so. There's been sort of a, a, a renaissance in people looking back at these films in a really positive way, uh, seeing it as not only inspirational but innovative. People who, th- who see them and they see them as, as, especially considering that now where you know semi-professional equipment is available to everybody, everyone can get a copy of a, a you know Final Cut or Premiere Pro and start putting their own movies together. But you were doing it at a time when. Even the most simple process of just editing that footage can be a really difficult proposition. And and when you see people say on on the fan group on Facebook, or when people come to you individually, or like Brandon Bennett, who I know is a is a huge fan of yours, 
when they come and they praise those early films, <laughs> what does it make you feel? I mean, it must be kind of interesting knowing that, that you have more ability than is shown in those movies. It is weird. My thing is, when I hear that, first of all, I'm extremely thankful for those guys because I had no idea there was a fan page anywhere, you know. Um, living here in the Midwest, it was very isolating, and I'm so involved with what I do with my radio show, Night Watch, and all that, that I don't really... You know, I didn't know that was even going on. And uh, so I have to give those guys huge kudos for that and for the love. But I got to say, when people are on there going, oh, Goblin, Goblin, I'm like, God dang it, guys. I never wanted to remember that movie again because <laughs> it, it was it was a freaking nightmare. And I don't mean just the fact that I sucked. I mean also the fact that it's an embarrassment. It, it, it really is in the way that, you know, I, I mean, I, I was kept out of, film festivals when I first did something decent because of those. I was uh, treated like crap. I've got people all over the internet calling me everything in the book. I had a guy actually say that if I picked up a camera again, he would drive to Kansas City and kill my mother. Jesus. I mean, this is the kind of nasty bullshit that you have on the internet where everybody and their mom is a critic, but not one of these fat bastards gets off the couch and picks up a camera. They sit there and put everyone else down. Same kind of people that were in that stupid class I took. And you know what, buddy? Let's see you do better with you know, in 1988 with $12 in your pocket and, and, and a dream. You know, I, I tell you what, it's very frustrating and it's very hurtful, not just for me because let's face it, I mean, you got to have thick skin and I've gotten better at it, but for the people who work their asses off in the middle of the winter and tried to make a movie, you know, my God, have some decency. You know, these guys, we were kids and these guys were doing the best they could. And people like Derek Bernier work their asses off, and they don't deserve to be like a pile of shit just because, you know, you think you're better than everybody else, and you're sitting in your little room, and you're, you know, you're being an asshole. To me, that's the part that's hurtful, and that's why I, I disowned those movies because man, I had to in order to move on. I, I mean, I was, I was, I was hurt, I was shocked, I was embarrassed, and I was ridiculed to the point where uh, most people would have stopped. But I'm a stubborn bastard, and I said, I know I can do better. <laughs> And the whole reason I'm doing it is a pure reason. I'm not doing it to make money or to be rich. I'm doing it because when I was a kid, I came from a broke Italian home. Okay, we had difficult times in our family. Uh, school was very difficult because some sometimes you didn't want to go. The night before, there'd be a big family fight. There'd be crap going on. You'd get in a big fight. I mean, you know, people don't understand where this stuff comes from. And I would go to the movie theater and I'd watch a Fulci movie or Phantasm or Carpenter stuff. And it would take me out of that environment for an hour and a half or two hours. And it would give me something to live in other than that environment of hostility. Mm. And and it, it really helped me. That and Iron Maiden music and things like that. You know, <laughs> that's why to this day I still love them. But when I got to, to, to the, a certain age, I was like, you know what? I want to do that. Maybe I can... Dreaming, of course, not trying to be egotistical, but I was thinking maybe I could do that for someone. Maybe I could get make a monster movie and some kid out there had a crap week like I had. Some kid, you know, had a fight with his dad or, you know, got in a lot of trouble or something bad happened. And uh, this will help him. You know, he can go and, and sit down in, the, in a movie theater and and uh, it'll take away that crap that he's dealt with for the last week for a couple of hours. Maybe I can give back a little. And that ultimately was the reason why I wanted to do it. I wanted to give back and, uh, and, and, and to create things and to be a part of that system, that world. I didn't do it 
to be a star or to be important. Like people nowadays, they all like, I mean, it's ridiculous how many directors and, and people I see out there that are like, I don't know, their, their motivation's all wrong. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, or, or, you know, it's an ego thing. These kids go to film school and they come out and they're like, we're God. Well, you know, I didn't have any of that, man. I just wanted to, I wanted to give back a little bit, man. When you come home and you get in a fight, and you end up fighting with your father. You break his ribs. Crazy stuff's going on in the house. You you got a bunch of the house is rocking with domestic problems. You need an escape. I don't care who you are. And kids today are turned to crazy crap to do that. When we were kids, we turned to movies and music, and we tried to you know television shows. We tried to submerse ourselves in something a little better uh, to get us out of that. And that's why you know as I got older, I wanted to to be a part of that machine. That's the only reason I got into it. And then to have that turned around on me and have people like saying all these terrible things, because like, for instance, when I was a kid, I had pneumonia. I almost died. I think I I fought, I've beaten death now three times, but I almost died as a little kid because I had pneumonia. And so at the time they didn't have like anything good to, to save you. So they were giving me like pumping me full of this tetracycline and crap. So in doing so back then they discolored your bones and your teeth. So my teeth have always been a little off. They're not perfectly white. Now, I could have went and paid thousands of dollars and been some kind of a cosmetic queen and got them all fixed. But my thing was, I brushed my teeth twice a day. I was a clean guy. Who cared, right? I'm I'm just normal. Man, I had some a-hole write to me, put me down in a a review. So uh, The the nice guy wrote to me and told me about the review, and I went and read it. This this a-hole on the Internet put me down in a review because he said my teeth looked rotted on a, on a commentary track or something on one of my old VHS wow. releases when they did a behind-the-scenes story on it. He said, I look like, I, I, he, he said, Todd Sheets can't direct and he can't brush his teeth. Dude, what the hell? You know, <laughs> oh what? Why, why the personal attacks on people? You know, I got out of that in high school. So then I'm like, I'm going to hunt this guy down and punch <clears> him in his face. Just because people like that, I, I, feel, like, I feel like Jay and Silent Bob. Uh, you know, I feel like I'm, I'm and I'm like, use bitches, I'm coming to kill you. You know, I feel like, you know, who the hell gave you the right to do that to me, man? I'm going to come to your house and punch you in the face, you fat bastard. Because I feel like it's like, man, where's the line? Where's the decency? You know, give people a chance here. I'm just, I was just a kid making a movie, for God's sakes. You know, it, 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 Todd, it, it, you mentioned about the idea of people using films as an escape. Uh, and, and I think that. I really do believe that people use have used your films in the same way, but not only just as an escape in terms of enjoying the films that you've made and the work that you've done, but you know, talking to like directors like like uh, Todd Jason Cook, who who had lots of amazing things to say about you and your work. I think that you've inspired people to go out and make their own films too, because of the fact. I think that people who actually do think about it, people who watch your films with the eye of look at what he is accomplishing with you know, very limited money with non-trained actors, with the, the equipment that he had available to him. They think of it as an inspiring thing as opposed to a reason to, you know, <laughs> discredit you or yeah. try to criticize you. Well, there's two kinds of people in the world. There's the people who get it and the people who don't, you know. And, and, that's, and that's exactly right. And that's, you know what, I've never had a problem with a critic saying, look, I didn't care for the movie. It wasn't my kind of thing or I didn't like it or I don't like this or I don't like that. That's fine. But the personal attack thing, that's going over the edge. That's like taking it too far. And, and these guys think they're funny. You know, they think they're comedians. And I'm like, well, don't quit your day job, buddy, because if you think I'm a bad filmmaker, I ain't got nothing on you as a comedian. You, know? <laughs> you 
really suck. So, you know, that's kind of one of those things. And, and also, you know, uh, my first brush with death was, you know, that time as a kid. Then I, I was riding in a car with a girl who lost control of the car and flipped the car. And the car literally, I was thrown out of the car and the, the road hit me in my head and knocked me back in twice. Car almost rolled on top of me. I brushed death then. I, I was saved. And the third time I had bypass surgery uh, in, in uh, April. April 27th through, I was in there until the, the end of May, I was almost June. I was in there a month and a day um, with my quadruple bypass surgery mm-hmm. of, of 2012, you know, just a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And, and I survived that. And I decided after that last one, look, you know, I hadn't made a movie in a while. I, the last movie I made was in 2005. And I said, uh, I'd lost my very dear friend Dennis Kings over then. He was like a brother to me. And, and, uh, and I lost him. And I kind of decided just to move away from the movies and stick with my radio show for a while and radio show started doing real well 413 stations worldwide mm-hmm. carrying that damn thing and uh including the bbc in australia we're going overnights in, in sydney and melbourne australia on the weekends we're doing really good with the show so i thought you know after that heart attack i really miss the creative process of making movies and i had been working on a script for a couple of years and a lot of the cool ideas i had in that script had already been done in other movies by that time you know, because let's face it, everyone gets good ideas together. I mean, you, no one was plagiarizing me. They, they hadn't even read it. But it was the fact that, well, someone had a similar idea and they were good ideas. So I threw it away. And I started from scratch except for one. I kept seeing one. And everything else, I started from scratch. <laughs> and uh, House of Forbidden Secrets was born. And I decided I'm I'm ready to come out and I'm ready to do it again and show people all that I've learned. And uh, I'm doing it right, man. I mean, this thing is huge. I got together with a producer, an executive producer, I should say. I'm, I'm producing, and he's executive producing, Brian David with BD Productions from Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And uh, we've gone balls out with this thing. And, and my thing was, if I ever had a little bit of a budget, meaning, you know, I'm not going to divulge the budget, but it's, it's less than a lot of movies, but more than I've ever had. Sure. I was going to use the people I, I worship and loved. And, of course, I'm out there right now negotiating with Fabio Frizi from Fulci's Movies wow. to do music. Um, I've got, uh, of course, Alan Kaiser from Night of the Creeps. So Bradster mm-hmm. is in it. George Hardy from Troll 2. That's awesome. Uh, Diane Thorne, Ilsa. Ilsa herself. Howard yep. Maurer, of course. Howard Maurer is also in the Ilsa movies. He's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Lou Temple, my good buddy, who's now in The Walking Dead and has done a lot of stuff with Rob Zombie and you know, Unstoppable and The Lone Ranger. He's, he's a big, big-time guy, and he's doing a lot of good work. And then Ari Lehman, First Jason, is coming in from Friday mm-hmm. the 13th. And uh, Lloyd Kaufman is also, uh, I'm making this announcement right here on your show for the first time. Lloyd Kaufman's in the movie. Uh, It's a special deal. He's coming in for us in a a couple weeks, and we're going to do something special with Lloyd. So uh, all the people I've said I wanted to work with, I have. The only downfall was I wanted to work with Candace Rialson. I love her. I love her. If you ask me who the greatest actress is of the 70s, I'd probably have to give you Candace Rialson. I love her. And I found out she passed away. Mm Mm-hmm. Candace was battling cancer, and uh, I ended up talking with her husband, and it was a heartbreaking, heartbreaking phone call uh, when that happened. I really, really, really wanted wanted to uh, to be able to have her in the movie. So rest in peace, Candace. We love you very much. And and other than that, man, this is the way it's going to be with me. You know, I want to bring right. in the people that I love. I don't want to. You know, everyone's like, well, God, for all the money you spent for all these guys flying in, I mean, airfare has <laughs> killed us. Half the budget, <laughs> two thirds of the budget, maybe is airfare. And I'm like, yeah, you know, for, for the fact that we spent so much damn money getting people in and out of here, uh, I could have hired some some other, like, A-list actors. I could have. Sure. 
But uh, you know what? To me, these guys are A-list actors. They're mm-hmm. my A-list actors. Yeah. And uh, and that's just the way it is. And, it, and if Tura Sotana was still around, <laughs> she would have been in this movie because we'd already talked about it. You oh, know, wow. She would have done it. So, Man. Uh, now, it's, just, uh, it's that kind of thing. It's Because I'm giving back not just to the fans, but I'm also giving back to the people who inspired me. You know? How, uh, how far into production are you at this point? We are almost damn near done. Principal photography is done, and now we're doing pickup shots and uh, finishing up a few scenes. Like, we would shoot the whole scene, but we'd miss the last three or four lines because of, you know, whatever. Like, in one case, we were in this old building, and we blew the breaker, so we had to, you know, we didn't know where the breaker was, so we had to just call it for the night, and we got to go back and finish. Just little things like that. So I'd say we're pretty much... Uh, four fifths of the way through, and we're working on that last part right now. Wow! That's when awesome. when do you when when do you think? I mean, I know it's it's hard to predict at this point when you're still in production. Um, when do you think people might be able to see it before the end of 2013? Of course, my goal is to have it out for the big f- summer finale. You know that sure. that August season when everything kick ass happens. Absolutely. Um, my goal is to have it. You know, screening a few times at some festivals before that. And then having a full-on release in August, um, I'm editing everything myself. I've got I just ended up getting another big, big editing computer here, uh, use, utilizing some of the budget for that. Thank God, you know, Brian David's really into what we're doing, and <laughs> and uh, it's been a learning experience to work with him because he's he's LA all the way and he works differently than me. But at the same time, we found a good middle ground, and and uh, we're even thinking about taking this thing out to Skywalker for the uh, for the sound mix. Wow, nice because. Wow. Uh, you know, that's another dream. If I can go to the ranch, first of all, I'm going to pass out on the footsteps. <laughs> and, uh, second of all, I'm going to wake up and then do a sound mix because uh, that would be unfrickin' believable. So uh, it's highly possible that could happen. You know what? The, uh, if someone had told me even a couple of years ago that in 2013 we'd be seeing a new Todd Sheets film uh, featuring all these amazing people that that we all love. I mean, frankly, the people who listen to this show uh, – Every name that you just mentioned is going to get them more and more excited. Yeah. I, I, I wouldn't have believed them. So, I mean, this is something, that, you know, to me, this is the event of the year. A new Todd Sheets film, House of Forbidden Secrets, and I personally can't wait to see it. I'm dying. I'm dying to see it. <laughs> well, thank you, guys. Thank you for that. Of course, people can check it out. I would love to have more people get on there. Uh, we're trying to hit 1,000. Uh, uh, right now, if we can hit 1,000, I'm going to release the first trailer. Uh, for uh, House of Forbidden Secrets on the on the fan page that that's been created out there, and it's uh it's on Facebook under House of Forbidden Secrets, and then of course the House of Forbidden Secrets dot com website is just House of Forbidden Secrets dot com. Real easy. Go to that, and uh, you'll be able to keep up with us. There's a blog people are posting in that are in the cast and crew and myself. That we're trying to keep people up on it because we want it to be really interactive. You know, things have changed. And we really want, uh, you know, our friends out there. I, I don't believe in calling anyone who likes me a fan, because man, who am I to have fans? I'm not Jackie Chan. My God, <laughs> but uh, but they're my friends, man. And, and you know what? We got a worldwide network of people who get it, who love it. We are the future. I want everyone to get into this movie because my next movie, if I can keep this movie going, mm-hmm. and we can get it out there, and we can get people to love it. I've already got things set up for the next movie, man. I've got Don the Dragon Wilson. Nice. Cynthia Rothrock. I'm going to get her, Gordon Lewis, hopefully, in it. And uh, J. Bob Briggs will be involved. We're going to do a big deal. And that's just a tip of the iceberg of things I've got proven because I've also got uh, so, some major Italian horror film stars to put in there. And uh, so my next movie is kind of a kung fu slasher 
uh, blowout that is really, I can guarantee you, there's never been a movie made like it before. Think Big Trouble Little China meets the original Evil Dead. <laughs> I don't think my brain could even comprehend something that often. Awesome. It's it's too much. <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna take it all the way. We're gonna take it all the freaking way. And there is a possibility, if this movie does well and I get a little bigger budget, you know, you never know who might turn up in there. You may even see familiar faces from Big Trouble and Little China in that puppy. So uh, <laughs> there's some pretty big things that we're talking about. And uh, I mean, when you talk to people like Fabio Frizzi. And uh, you, you send them your script and they write back and say, the script is fantastic. We want to be involved. It makes you realize that thanks to the age of the Internet, I can actually hunt down someone in Rome, Italy, and I can actually make a connection. And if I have a little bit of money, I can make these dreams happen. And that's the thing is, you know, we can we can get bigger. This is the start of something new. It's kind of a rebirth. And I'm ready to really take it all the way. The sky's the limit. And it's people like you that I have to thank for this because without you guys, I wouldn't be able to do this anymore and I would really be bummed. You guys are keeping it alive, not only for me, but for everybody out there. I'm also doing a little uh, part of an anthology deal called High Eight. Yeah. Uh, that Brad oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, together. yeah. he's doing something cool with uh, with Tim over there, Tim Ritter. And, you know, I look at Tim Ritter, who doesn't love Killing Spree and all that? And I'm like, <laughs> come on, man. These guys contacted me and said, hey, can you do one of our – one of our segments. Are you kidding? I jumped at it. I'm already, I've already got it written and I'm going to start shooting it in two weeks. And uh, I'm going to shoot this deal over at one weekend because it's a pretty small deal. And, uh, and they've given me all these rules to follow. It's so old school. It's not, <laughs> I'm like getting my dolly. Ready. I'm like, all right, I got this great dolly shot. I'm doing this radio station. No, no, can't do dolly shots. <laughs> rules. No dolly shots. Got to keep it old school. I'm like, Oh, but now I know how to do stuff. Do? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, but I'm really looking forward to that. And then I've got a couple of other projects that I've got going. And, man, I'm not going to slow down until I'm forced to slow down. And I, like I said, you guys, your show, your podcast here, your love of it on the Internet, you know, what you're doing for all of us, I can't thank you enough because you guys are the heart and soul pulse of keeping us alive out here and and we're going to do our best at least on my end I I am I'm going to do everything I can to make you proud and for all those years you've stood up for me and you fought for me against all these a-holes who told me they're going to kill my mom you guys this is for you this is for you amen well I mean I'm happy to be a friend of Todd Sheets I'm uh, it's 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 frankly I mean we already mentioned it being an honor having you on the show and maybe you might scoff a little on that title of honor but uh, really this is really the biggest moment for us. We see you as the the originator of a lot of the uh, the wonderful, uh, you know, do it yourself. Go out there and make a movie. Use the resources you have. Develop into into a real full, uh, you know, fully developed filmmaker. The people I talk to. They they saw your films, they saw them as an inspiration, and now they're out there and they're making their own films. Exactly. And it's amazing to see Todd Sheets is back in 2013 with House of Forbidden Secrets, and it's going to be an exciting thing to witness. Yeah, 18-year-old me is pissing his pants right now. <laughs> that is awesome. That is, I got to tell you guys, I, hearing all that makes me so happy, and I want to thank all the people out there that I, that I have maybe inspired in some way, and I, that's all I ever wanted to do, man. That's all I ever wanted, and it's very humbling. And, and all I say to anyone that's just starting out, man, just uh, make a bunch of, of little little things for yourself. Make some films just for yourself. Read a book called Film Directing Shot by Shot. It's a blue book. It's a fantastic book. It'll teach you so much in just that one book. It'll teach you everything. It's like a Bible for directing. And then, you know what? 
throw your ego out the door and just enjoy yourself. And when people go to put you down, you keep going because you matter. And, uh, and every person that picks up a camera, my heart is with you. And, uh, and my love is with you as well. You guys keep the world spinning. And, uh, and I want to thank you guys for bringing me on the show. It's awesome. And now I get to go talk with 42nd Street Pete because I get to go produce his show. <laughs> <laughs> Wise words from Todd Sheets. Todd, thanks so much for being with us today. And uh, we will definitely stay in touch. Thank you, guys. You have a good night. Yeah, you too. You too. Bye-bye. What a great time that was talking to uh, the one and only Todd Sheets, man. That's like a fucking dream of mine. I mean, I know, like, it's funny. I didn't say a whole lot during the interview, and that's mostly because it's very hard to get a word in edgewise when you when Doug's the other person talking. But uh, hey, Todd was yeah. was holding his own. In, in the... Yeah, he absolutely was. He absolutely <laughs> was. But uh, but I mean, I'm I'm not I'm not too unwilling to admit how a little starstruck I was, you know, I mean, this is, this is a guy who has been like a personal hero of mine since like 1998, you know, since I was like a teenager, you know, so it was very, very awesome to be able to get to, to actually sit down and listen to him and, and hear the things that bother him and the things that he loves and the, you know, like the, where he's going with his career and like all these great ideas that he, that he has. It's, oh, it's fantastic. Yeah. We've jokingly referred to Todd Sheets as the Pope of no budget nightmares, but the fact is he's symbolic of everything that this show and the articles on daily grindhouse and really all the writing I've been doing over the past, you know, year and a half yeah. or so. He is really the symbol of what that is. So yeah. to be able to talk to him and to be able to have him come on the show and not only, you know, and be very complimentary about, about us and what we're doing. I mean, it really is. It was just a, a wonderful thing to have happen for us. And I'll tell you, like I said, 2013 is going to be a big year for No Budget Nightmares. It's going to be a big year for Todd Sheets. I'm really looking forward to see what's coming up. Booyah. Fantastic. Good. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> let's wrap. Let's wrap this shit up and, uh, and, uh, and and we. Oh, what are we? What are we watching next time? I thought that next time it might be a good idea to do Jim Van Bever's Deadbeat at Dawn. Yeah, I'm never gonna. I'm never gonna say no to that. I mean, you, you do Deadbeat at Dawn. We could do My Sweet Satan. Whatever. I'll do whatever. I think it's time for Deadbeat at Dawn, and I think. I think that would be a. I think that's that's hitting that sweet spot of films that people actually know, which sure. sometimes we need to bounce back from ones that they haven't. Good night. Perfect. Do, 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 do. Oh, I can't do an imitation of our theme music. <laughs>